What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Bill's Chat. This is Josh, and of course, with me is Luca. Luca, how's it going tonight? Uh, it's going well. Uh, a little bit on the tired side. A lot of travel recently with my normal day job, but uh, we're doing good. We're hanging in there. You're a gamer. You've uh, been traveling all day. You've been texting me updates on when we're going to record. He literally got out of his car, into his house, down to the recording station. So he is doing this on fumes, and we respect him for that. Luca, it's funny because at the end of last week's episode, we had said, we are going to turn the page now to the draft and the NFL, the off season that never actually takes an off season just refuses to let us focus on the draft. Just in the last seven days, we have had a lot of news, a lot of bills related news, another NFL bombshell of a trade. So we're going to spend the first 20 minutes or so just getting into some of that, talking about how it affects the bills how it affects maybe what the Bills might do in the draft. But before we get into anything roster move related, we have to start the show, Luca, with the big news that came down yesterday, a 30-year agreement, a Buffalo Bills new stadium that's going to be up in 2026, a $1.4 billion project. It's a open-air stadium in Orchard Park across the street from the current stadium. And it's said to be about 60,000 seat capacity. And Luca, we talked about our different paths to fandom of the Bills. I'm obviously the guy in the Midwest. I've attended one Bills game in my life as far as in Buffalo. I've attended many others on the road. You are the guy that's in the stadium every year. So I'm going to defer to you when we talk about this topic. First of all, what was your reaction when you saw the new stadium agreement? Overall, I enjoy it. I, I I should say enjoy it sounds almost mute, but I, I'm I'm excited. The 30 year part, which also I believe I learned later, included the fact that the 30 year starts post construction, which is kind of cool because I think the projected build date or build time is three to five years or so. As you said, 2026 is the projected time, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. 2026. So, so that's awesome that the 30 year point even starts there because what that just does is give such a nice, warm, comfy feeling that this team is not going anywhere. And that is the major point of it all. And that's the best part of it. And that's what's the most exciting part. But on top of it all, a nice, shiny, brand new stadium is going to be awesome. The, the Ralph, I will just call it, you know, it's been called many things over the past few years, the cap, uh, high mark most recently. But the Ralph has been, it's seen better days. It's still, I mean, it's still uh, nostalgia and everything else. I remember the first game I went there as a little kid and, and all those things and, and how awesome it was. But it's really, really exciting to get a new thing here and keep this team here. And I, I'm going to guess this is going to draw you into the area for a game maybe in the near future once it's built. So, uh, yeah, overall, I love it. I'm going to have to attend more games, although I'm very curious to see how ticket prices uh, are reflected once that stadium's up and going, uh, just because we are the most inexpensive ticket in the NFL. And I would imagine it probably might stay that way, but it's going to still go up pretty, pretty. Yeah, it's going to go up. So, yeah, it's about down 10,000 seats from what the current construction is of Highmark. And to your point, I am going to come attend in the new stadium. I did tell my wife tonight that 
we have to make it out to Buffalo before Highmark is torn down because I want to go to one more game in Highmark, take my daughter out there. Really, in the last couple of years, it's been one of those things that we talk about every year. And then with the outbreak of COVID and just not really wanting to be around crowds and the uncertainty around that, it just really hasn't fit into our plans. So, Luca, what has the word been around your friends that also go to games with you? Because for as excited as we all should be, and I am, that the Bills are going to stay in Buffalo, and that is very important. They are locked in to Buffalo for the next 30 years after 2026. There was some negative reaction I saw on Twitter, on social media about, oh, it's not a dome, or oh, it's not in downtown Buffalo, or oh, wow, why are they reducing it from 70 to 60,000? We can talk about all those points tonight, why the Bills decided to do those things, but did you pick up on any of that negativity in your circle? I picked up on some. There was definitely, and I think, let me let me start it with this. I believe it was more when the initial leaks were coming out about what was kind of being worked on and finalized. I don't think it was much more brought up at this point when it was like, okay, it's reality. You know, this is announced. This is official. Um, when it was originally leaked, there was definitely the conflicting opinions with dome, open air, uh, downtown, keeping it in Orchard Park. I think the downtown thing within my social circles was more of the desired of the two. I think Dome, of course, when you look at the team and stuff like that, you know, people, of course, go, well, Josh Allen could thrive in a dome if we had a dome. But at the same time, 2026 comes around or at that point when this was being discussed in my social circle, we didn't really know the, you know, the projected date. It was just speculated. And at the end of the day, they're going to, you know, the argument for a dome I feel like when it comes to people that want it, yes, they may be like, yeah, it'd be good. It'd be better for the team. It'd be better for offensive play. But in reality, everyone's selfish. You want a dome because you want to be comfortable. You want to be sitting in a nice climate controlled environment to watch a game and not have to sit. And well, some people do like this, let me also say, but you don't want to, most people don't want to sit in a 10 degree, maybe, you know, below freezing blizzard to watch a game every once in a while doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen once in a while here in lovely Western New York mm-hmm. come winter time. But you wanted a nice controlled environment. But at the same time, this is going to be what they call that open air, but it, like a covered open air where right. it, it's going to be essentially controlled, quote unquote, with where the spectators are. But then it's open air over the field itself. And to be honest, in my opinion, I think that's a nice, perfect medium. I think that embraces the area of which it's in, but also still tries to provide, you know, comfort when it comes to spectators as best as you can. Um, I, I, I have no qualms with this. I have no problem with any part of this at the end of the day. Me personally, I liked the idea of downtown, not to get too far into this, of course, but I like the idea of downtown, but the, I, I don't, know how they would have handled say traffic and everything like that i mean back in the heyday of the sabers you know let's say the most recent with 06 or well i should say 05 to you know going into even 2012 some of those game nights and stuff like that if they ran into you know traffic for eighteen thousand, it was shitty now you're talking sixty thousand. i don't know how they would of course have to work everything around that probably build more infrastructure and work out the highway system to support such spikes in travel. But 
at the same time, I don't know how it works. So or leaving it in Orchard Park, I have no issue with. Yes, it's a little bit further for someone like me that lives in the North Towns. It's not the end of the world. I have no problem driving to Orchard Park for a game if I feel like it. People that were like, you know, downtown, it's closer to everyone. It centralizes it. It brings life downtown. Yes. But also, do you really have a problem with Orchard Park? No. It's just, it's in the, it's down in the South Towns. Whatever. No big deal. And then, of course, you can keep the tailgate scene exactly where it is. You don't have to adjust that. And I know that's a big, important thing for a lot of people, too. So the infrastructure really was, I think, a non-starter for the downtown project. It, For one, you mentioned the traffic. I think they would have really had to reconstruct some of the highways down there and maybe even talk about some sort of transit to get to the games. Two, you mentioned the parking lots and the tailgate situation. When you have a stadium downtown, it's not just the square footage for the stadium. You have to have all the parking necessary for that. And with a team like Buffalo and an environment like the Bills like to have in their parking lots and their tailgating, they really want that centralized around the stadium. And when you look at some of these stadiums that are based in the downtown metro areas, sure, there's there's parking around the stadium, but a lot of it is you have to walk a mile, two miles, take a cab to the stadium from the parking lot. And that really does kind of detract from the whole tailgating aspect. The other thing that they brought up on One Bills Live this week with Chris Brown and Steve Tasker was it would not have been feasible to build a stadium downtown without actually having to basically kick people out of their houses and build over that land to get it done. And they just didn't want to do that. That was a non-starter for them. I think that would have added a significant more amount of money to that project. And I know there's some people that thought, oh, you know, you could have killed two birds with one stone. You could have really enhanced the downtown and really built it up. But that's not really the Pagula's job, right? Like their job is to make sure their team has the best environment to play in. I understand it. I get it why people are upset. But to me, if you've been reading the tea leaves following Jason Wolf and Tim Graham, who've been all over this since 12 months ago, it was never going to be downtown. It was always going to be open air in Orchard Park. I am on Team Dome, so I was disappointed. But again, I knew six months ago it wasn't going to be a dome. Look, I've fallen in love with watching Josh Allen throw for 4,000 yards and having one of the best offenses in the, in the league. But the problem with the dome is I think people misunderstand that, oh, if you have a dome, you can turn it into a year-round venue where it's not just hosting, um, what is it, nine max football games a year plus playoffs, maybe a couple preseason um, then, you know, you can turn into, oh, maybe a WWE event will come to town or March Madness deeper rounds besides the first two rounds that Buffalo normally gets at the uh, Sabres arena, I believe. And it just gives you a more year round feel. But the problem is it, it's just way more expensive. And I've heard that Terry Pagula, you know, love him or hate him for this, is a big fan of outdoor football. He's a traditionalist. He thinks football needs to be played outside. Another thing. I understand that poor weather, bad conditions. We saw it in the playoffs. We saw it seemed like every Bills home game this year had some sort of weather element that was playing into it. The Bills right now have a transformer at quarterback. He has the strongest arm in the league. He has huge hands. He can run like a running back. If the conditions are making it harder to pass, there's a chance that he's going to thrive in those conditions better than any quarterback he's facing. And these Buffalo conditions should be an advantage for you if you're going to be hosting home games in January. You have the ability to build your team to play in those conditions. 
can you run the ball effectively if a situation pops up like that Monday night game against the Patriots where throwing the ball really didn't seem like an option, at least for the first half of the game. Can you build a team to stop the run? There's ways you can construct your team that's advantageous to you when you get in those situations where it does work in your favor. Again, I wish the Bills had an indoor stadium. I I don't see the charm that some people see in snow games. Sure, when the Bills were going 6-10 and 10 every year under Dick Duran, the occasional snow and windy game was charming because, hey, the team stinks. Might as well have some cool background, background um, what am I trying to think here? Background noise of the wind and the fans throwing snowballs, yada, yada, yada. This is a Super Bowl contender. It's a lot less charming when your quarterback, who you think is one of the best in the league, can't throw a ball because the wind is howling. So I get it. I get the frustration. But at the end of the day, I'm okay with it. Ben Roethlisberger won two Super Bowls playing in Pittsburgh. Tom Brady won, what, six in New England? So there's there's been two Super Bowls, one in Green Bay by Aaron Rodgers and um, Brett Favre in my lifetime. You can build a championship team in cold weather climates. The biggest thing, though, Luca, like you said, the Bills aren't going anywhere. You and I have lived through the Toronto series where it sure felt like Ralph Wilson had sold his soul to the devil to play a game up in Toronto every year. And then when the team was up for sale and Bon Jovi hopped in on it, it was like, oh God, here we go. And now we don't have that fear anymore. There's no longer fear of the big, bad, money-hungry Jerry Jones saying, we need to build the move the bills to a bigger market where they can be more profitable. In fact, Jerry Jones loves Terry Pagula. He loves what Terry Pagula wants to pump into his team. These are going to be the Buffalo Bills. It's going to be an orchard park. And then the last thing I want to say, there was a lot of concern about coming down from 70,000 seats to 60,000 seats. To me, that's just a sign of the times. It's not like the, uh, the stadium's going to be any smaller. It's in 2021, 2022, people prioritize comfort. It's not going to be wedged in 70,000 people. People want spaced out seating. They want to have, I've heard that there's going to be microbreweries in the stadium. There's going to be big suites. There's going to, there is going to be standing room that doesn't count into that, that 60,000 seat. The keyword there is seat. That doesn't count all the other areas where people can stand and party and have fun. This is going to be a much more modern feeling stadium. And in this day and age, people pay for comfort. They pay to enjoy the experience. They don't want to have people sitting on their laps at the game to say, oh man, we're so loud. This guy is almost in my lap. That's how many we can cram into the stadium. No, that's not what people want. They want to be comfortable. They want to have a good time. They want to enjoy themselves. And if you look at the stadiums that have been built recently, the attendance numbers have gone down. And then you hate to say this because we're all Bills fans. We know Bills fans are great, but there's the argument Oh, the Bills always sold out. They always sold out. Why did we go down to 60,000? They didn't always sell out. In the 90s, the Bills were going to the Super Bowl four years in a row. They were the winningest team in the 90s, and yet they had a 65% sellout rate. That was from One Bills Live. That's nothing to say against Bills fans. What you do with your money is great, but we need to stop pretending like the Bills just automatically sell out every year just because the team has been fantastic the last three years. The Bills, like every other team in the NFL, when they're bad, People choose to spend their money in other ways. So it's not an automatic given that if you have 70,000 seats, there's going to be 70,000 seats filled. I think this is a good thing that it's down to 60 and it's not any kind of sign that they think that Bills fans aren't loyal. They're going to make money because they're going to charge people PSLs. And that's unfortunately where the Pagula side of the payment is going to come from is the PSL charge. 
But I know I just said a lot there, Luke. I, I kind of touched on the three main pain points. Is there anything else on the stadium, the stadium issue, or anything that you want to hit on before we move on to the next topic? I think everything was covered pretty well. I, I think the overall, as I'll just say it again, is the fact that it's a 30-year deal. Nice little bonus that it's a 30-year deal once finished and completed, and they're going to be here for a while. Everything else will be forgotten. No one's going to complain. It's going to be a beautiful new stadium, uh, and it, they're here. That's all that matters. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. The Bills aren't going anywhere. We have a new stadium. They're going to be playing where they're playing, and everyone's going to show up when they can, as best as they can, and probably just as early before game days as they were before with the current stadium and looking forward to it. All right. Well, you know, as the off season moves on, Luca, I think, you know, once we get past the draft, we get into the summer months, we could even dedicate an entire show to really just talking about the stadium, the ups and downs, the ins and outs. Well, we should have renderings by then. They should be coming out in a few months and maybe over the summer, it'd be good just to dedicate a show to the stadium and things like that. But there was some NFL news to get into another bombshell that does directly affect the bills. Tyreek Hill was traded from the Miami or traded to the Miami Dolphins from the Kansas City Chiefs. And on one hand, you're like, great, Miami Dolphins, they already had Waddle and Jaseki, and now they're going to have Tyreek Hill. How are you going to cover those receivers? But Luca, my first thought when this came down was when there was about a two-hour period where Rapsheet and Schefter said, Tyreek Hill is on the trade block, and the two teams that are most interested are the Jets and the Dolphins. My immediate reaction was, oh my God, I hope he gets traded. Because yes, He's a fantastic player. And yes, playing him twice a year in the division does make the division tougher. But my God, the Bills have seen their season in two years in a row in Arrowhead. And outside of Patrick Mahomes, the biggest reason their season ended is because they had nobody on the field who could stop Tyreek Hill. So if you take the Chiefs from a great team down to a very good team, and the trade-off is the Dolphins go from a good from an average team to maybe a pretty good team. I'm taking that all day long. The Chiefs are still the biggest barrier between our Bills holding that Lombardi Trophy for the first time in all of our lives. And if we can do anything to weaken them by taking their best weapon away, I'm all for it. They can send all their best players to Miami outside of Mahomes, please, and I'll be thrilled with it. Luca, what was your response when you saw it? I was nervous at first just thinking about okay the dolphins are really trying to no no excuse they are trying to make no excuse that's what they're doing they are going all in with Tua trying as best as they can giving him absolutely everything he could possibly ask for built around him and just trying to see if they can really threaten the king of the castle right now, which is our Buffalo Bills. And Tyreek Hill is that one guy that we've always brought up and been, we don't have an answer for. And now to have him in our division, well, that does stink. But I think your point about taking him away from the Chiefs is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than it is for then him to be dropping into Miami because you have a proven commodity in Mahomes, as you mentioned. He is a legitimate threat, and you had this unstoppable force at wide receiver as Tyreek Hill for that guy. And we, as we've seen over the years, have no answer for that. Well, now you've kind of created this situation where 
as you mentioned, Tyreek now goes to Tua and probably makes the Dolphins a pretty good team. I mean, the Dolphins are going to put up a hell of a fight with the Bills both games we play against them. I mean, Tyreek is Tyreek. That will be a problem. Him himself will be a problem. But with Tua there, you you're not going to expect to have him running free 30 yards down the field and then an absolute dot being put in his basket. You're you're not going to see that or expect that. I mean, hey, maybe a magical turnaround happens with Tua. It's just not something that I see happening. I don't think a lot of people see happening. You know, I obviously there was social media reaction. I would say it's safe to assume a majority of the Bills faithful, the Bills mafia out there believe that we won't be seeing that. We'll be seeing something a little more comical. Um, But yeah, I think it's a net positive. We'll call it that. That's that's a good way to say it's a net positive. You're taking the best weapon, as you said, from Kansas City, from Mahomes and putting it elsewhere. It's just helping us. Get over that hurdle of Kansas City, which is still clearly the hurdle. And moving it to Miami, yes, it's in the division. But at the end of the day, boy, does 17 love to play Miami. And I'm not overly concerned about it. And to your point, the Bills could lose a game to the Dolphins this year. Shoot, they could lose two. I wouldn't bet on it. If you had to ask me right now how many division wins the Bills would have this year, I'd say probably five, maybe four if they slip twice. But To me, it's not about winning those isolated games with Miami. Remember, the NFL season is a marathon, not a sprint. Individual games matter, but they really only matter in the collective whole of what happens at the end of the year. So the Bills could go out and play Miami early in the year. They could lose 35 to 17. It could be really embarrassing. Tua could throw for four touchdowns. Tyreek Hill could go for 200 yards. Great. That sucks. That would be really painful. The postgame show would be wild. We'd be on here saying, what happened? Why'd we give... Why do we give Tyree kill to the Dolphins? Now we're falling apart again. Just look what happened last year when the Patriots came into Buffalo. They won on Monday Night Football, and we all thought the sky was falling like, oh my God, Bill Belichick has already caught back up to us and passed us. It's an 18-week season, 17 games, and I still feel incredibly confident that with Josh Allen, with our coaching staff, that over a 17-week season, the Bills are going to net out to more wins than the Miami Dolphins, because I truly believe no matter what you see with outlier teams like San Francisco, which is where Mike McDaniel came from, that you have to have an elite quarterback to be a consistent winner. You're going to play too many close games if you don't have an elite quarterback. And as we saw with the Bills last year, close games cannot go your way sometimes, or in the Bills case last year, every close game goes against you. If you don't have that elite quarterback and you're relying on running game and defense to win, all your games are going to be one possession games. And those tend out to be flip of the coin games. And by the end of the year, the team with Josh Allen that's scoring 35 points a week is probably going to have more wins. And that's really all that matters. So I love the trade-off. I thought you had a great point in our Discord chat when this rumor was coming out about Bills, or I'm sorry, about the Dolphins and the Jets. And a couple of us were like, man, you know, I think I'd rather go to the Jets. And you actually said, I don't want them to go to the Jets because I look at Zach Wilson and I, I'll let you make this point because this this was actually your point and I don't want to steal it from you. But to wrap it up on about Tua, I think the reason why Bills fans for the most part, and I'll speak for myself on this, aren't afraid of him taking that Josh Allen leap that we saw Josh Allen take when the Bills made a similar trade for Stefan Diggs is the tool set just isn't there to unlock with Tua. He's not going to be a guy that runs all over you or throws it 70 yards downfield. So 
I'm going to go let you take over now. You actually were in the minority, but now it makes perfect sense to me and said, I really have no interest in him going to Zach Wilson. Do you remember why you thought that? Absolutely. I remember. I look at Zach Wilson and I definitely think I'm starting to become in the minority at this point in time because I have made this point to others as well with similar reaction. But Zach Wilson is someone that has those tools that really are there. And I think it was visible later in the year. And I believe even in a game where they lost to the Bills on week 18, I almost said 17 there, week 18, um, you could see that the progression of a NFL season was there with Zach Wilson. And he was getting up to speed with the NFL a lot better. And at the end of the day, you can't teach arm strength. You can't teach those tools of a quarterback that eventually the brain needs to catch up with. And I think early on and when he was leading the league in interceptions, he may have finished with the league lead in interceptions. I can't recall the exact statistic. I'm not paying attention to Zach Wilson that in depth. But early on when he was just throwing it around and eventually getting picked off five times a game, that's just him going off instinct, going off gut feeling. He's trying to fit it into places that eventually he will learn you can't be doing at this level. You know, those were balls he were he was throwing while at BYU and while in college that it you could get away with it because at the end of the day, it's just athletes out there kind of in college, especially the level that he was playing for the majority. It's just athlete versus athlete, and you just need to get it somewhat in the region because either your guy's going to get it as long as you can hit somewhat of a window or no one is with an arm like that. And you give that kind of guy, a guy like Tyreek Hill, who can quite literally run under any ball. I mean, he's the fastest human in the NFL. I don't think anyone's going to doubt that. You give someone like that, you would expect Zach Wilson to then progress a lot more. And by the end of year two, we could be sitting, we could have been sitting here at the end of the 2022 season saying Zach Wilson is already a better quarterback than Tua. And I think that at the end of the day, that was my fear. It's like, I don't want to give this potential raw, you know, prospect in our division a god of a weapon and then watch him explode because of it and really develop confidence in the ability and develop that ability with it, you know, his play and in and his decision making to then take it to the next level. It's like I would like to keep him in a world where he might not still be comfortable and he might question things. I'm not trying to hate on him because I do like Zach Wilson. And I think, you know, I'm again in the minority on that. I think Zach Wilson is still a promising prospect at this point in time. It's just I definitely don't want to see him in this division getting confident real quick with a guy like Tyreek Hill. You know, you can call it recency bias. You can call it whatever you want. But we have seen the toolsy quarterback hit so so recently with guys like Justin Herbert, our own guy, Josh Allen, Lamar Jackson, that to me, I just, a guy like Zach Wilson, yes, he didn't have the best rookie year. That's obvious. But to me, I still love the upside he has. And everything you said is true. Even in a game that was horrible for the Jets offensively in week 18 last year, they could get nothing going outside of one touchdown pass where there were some broken tackles. And you could still see where the Bills had free blitzers and he escaped the pocket and broke a tackle and got out and made a play and then made a throw. And then it was offline and it was incomplete. You're just like, you know, there's something there. And that's the kind of play that 
80% of the quarterbacks in the league are getting sacked on and he's making something happen. I'm not saying he's going to be great, but at this point I would gamble on traits and I really like Zach Wilson, but that's enough Jets talk for one episode here of Bill's chat. One thing that did happen bills wise this week is the bills did bring back Ryan Bates on a four year, $17 million deal. He was tendered a contract by the Chicago bears and the bills decided to match it. So Ryan Bates is back along with Ike Botker. And we will talk about what that means for the Bills offensive line group and what that could mean for their draft plans later on this episode, because we are going to get into every single position group on offense and what we think the Bills could and should do in the draft. But quickly, Luca, what was your reaction when you heard Ryan Bates was back? First and foremost, I'm happy that Bates is coming back. I think when we saw a little bit of the issues occurring last season in the heart of the season when it came to just not being able to block anything it seemed like especially that Jags game oof um when Bates came in and kind of shook things up a little bit I think we saw a bump up I think we saw an improvement in everything um and it's nice to have a guy like that to then come back stay in this system you know he's a name that they hopefully can rely on more moving forward I, I see in our notes here, you know, does that take us out of the interior offensive line conversation? No, I don't think the Bates signing takes us out of that. And also, I I apologize if I stepped it over it, but also Ike Bacher coming back, you know, I don't believe that moves the needle too much in respect to maybe looking to see what else is out there with the interior offensive line, more with the draft, we'll say, but it at least shores up and gives you confidence that guys who have been here have had some success, some level of it at least, um, are still there and can be relied on at least early in the season. Say we take someone that maybe we want to work on and he, he could then eventually become the next left guard for us. Great. But you early on, you're not going to be just throwing that guy in. You're going to probably put Bates in there because you know what you're going to get out of it. And sometimes it's really nice to just have a guy you can just go, I know exactly what he's going to bring. I know exactly what I'm getting out of him. And I think Bates has shown already, even with the limited amount, that he is that person. He might not be a superstar, he, but he's also not a complete bum. And you're, you know exactly what you're going to get out of him. And I think overall, I'm happy with it. Yeah, it gives you a baseline player and you like what you saw last year, even in limited snaps at the end of the year. It really unlocked, especially in their running game, the ability to pull both guards and also get Mitch Morse out there pulling. And just that added athleticism on the interior can really do a lot to unlock a running game that we know they're trying to unlock. All right, Luca, finally, before we get into draft talk, one more piece of news today, which unfortunately for a lot of us is Bills related. The NFL Competition Committee elected to change the overtime rules for playoffs only. So unfortunately, we know that the springboard for this was what happened in the Bills Chiefs game. Everybody listening knows what happened there. No need to re go through all that. But the new rule is each team is guaranteed at least one possession. So using that Chiefs game as the example, the Chiefs go down, score a touchdown. They would have to kick the extra point in that scenario or go for two if they elect to. And then the Bills would get the ball. If it's still tied after the Bills got the ball, then it becomes sudden death with the team that won the coin toss. In that case, the Chiefs getting the ball. Now, I know the initial thought was, 
well, all you did was kick the can down the pro- down the road and you just extended the problem to the second possession because the team that wins the coin toss still has the first chance in sudden death. But Luca, we were talking about this before the show came on the air. That's not entirely true. And I think there are some scenarios where maybe you might even consider kicking. What do you think about that? Yeah, I want to start with this just by giving you a shout out on filling me in on that. As you mentioned to start this podcast uh, today, especially was wake up, work, long travel. So I didn't even have a chance to see this. I saw it happened. I just didn't even know what the rule was. So appreciate you, you know, filling me in real quick before we started recording. But um, yeah, the theory that immediately came to my head is, man, it almost in a way and it it might be a crazy theory and it's, you know, outlandish to say, Hey, you're in overtime. Do you want the ball or do you want to kick it? But at the same time, well, now you're guaranteed a possession. So say you're in the bills predicament in that exact game, you win the coin toss and you have the number one statistical defense in the league. Worst thing that can happen. They drive down the field, they score on you, which unfortunately happened, but you know, now you're getting the ball back. And all of a sudden, you're in a position where in that game, you couldn't be stopped. So you you like your chances of going down and being able to match that score. Well, if they do that, now you have the ability to decide, say they kick the extra point just to go up seven. Well, now you can all of a sudden go for two and end the game there. That's an incredible advantage. That is, that's some next level thinking on, well, Obviously, you want to play with game flow. You want to understand where you sit in comparison to your opponent and how everything is, you know, around you. But as a prime example of the game of which that this new rule has been birthed from, I mean, if I was the Bills and I won that toss, kicking would have been pretty enticing because all of a sudden you go from a disadvantage to an advantage real quick, regardless of what Kansas City was able to do. Because now you get the ball to finish, maybe, if you can go down and then just get another score, which it really seemed like there was no way Josh Allen was getting stopped by anyone other than Josh Allen. And I'm not talking about the Jaguars, Josh Allen, because obviously (laughs) he wasn't playing in that game. I'm talking about the man himself. So it's an interesting dynamic. I'm not sure how I feel about it overall at this point. That might be partly due to me learning about the rule in general only 40 minutes ago. But yeah, I kind of want to mull that over a little bit. But at the same time, it does bring an interesting thought right out the gate on, well, maybe you want to kick now all of a sudden. So really, it's a chess match of information, right? If you get the ball first, you don't know what you have to do. It's kind of like if you're a baseball fan, when you go to extra innings, there's the top of the ninth or the top of the 10th and the bottom of the 10th, right? The top of the 10th, you can score 10 runs, but the other team at that point in the bottom of the 10th knows exactly how many runs they have to get to extend the game and exactly how many runs they have to get to win the game. Same thing here. If you get the ball first in overtime now, obviously there's pressure anyway because we are in overtime to score, but if you get a touchdown and kick the extra point, all of a sudden the team that gets the ball back, they know right off the bat, okay, well, I have to get a touchdown. So Now where the team that gets the ball to start off overtime has to make decisions. Okay, is it worth going for it on fourth down or should I maybe just punt and play defense? Punting isn't an option when you get the ball. You automatically get an extra down no matter what because you have to match the score. That's an advantage for the team that gets the ball second. Also, if the team that gets the ball first gets a field goal, you can look at a fourth and one and think, man, you know, I could kick a field goal here or I could, you know, try to get a yard and win the game here. You can base a lot of it on how the game's going. That game that the Bills played against the Chiefs, 
in that scenario, let's say everything goes the same up until the Chiefs score the touchdown and get the extra point, the Bills get the ball back and they go down and score, there is a 100% chance the Bills should go for two in that scenario. Why in the world would you kick it back to Patrick Mahomes knowing all he needs at that point is a field goal and Harrison Butker has Legatron and he can kick from the 50-yard line? Why not just say, hey, I need two yards. I have Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes, and Tyreek Hill, and Travis Kelsey are on the sidelines. Let's decide the game right now with their defense. If I can't get two yards with Josh Allen, I'll live with it. So I'm excited about it. I think more strategy does come into it. And at the end of the day, Luca, uh, a game should not come down to a coin toss. And I don't think that 13 seconds game with the Bills came down to a coin toss. But in general, the way overtime was before, it was slanted in favor of the team that won the toss. And the fact that we're sitting here right now pondering, hey, is it better to kick or receive? I think it's a win. So just for nothing else, the fact that no matter whether you get the ball or you, or you don't, you can make the argument either way of what's better. I think today's decision went a long way to help rectify that. And I do like the fact that it's only for the playoffs because we don't need regular season games going four and a half hours. Nobody wants that. And it is what it is. So Luca, we have talked about Ryan Bates. We've talked about the new stadium. We have talked about overtime rules. We've talked about Tyreek Hill. And now about 40 minutes into the show, we are finally, finally turning our attention to the draft. Are you ready, Luca, to dive in to the offensive side of the draft? I could not be more excited. Well, actually, I probably could be because I'm a little tired. But yeah, no, I'm pumped. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. Well, because you're tired, we will start with an easy one. So here's how we're going to do it tonight. I'm going to go through, we're going to go through each position group on the Bills. We're going to talk about what their current depth chart looks like. We're going to spin it forward to what it will look like next year based on the contracts that are on the books. We're going to try to figure out, okay, is this a position we could see the Bills using a first or a second round pick on? Or is this a position that they're fairly set at? And maybe if they take a pick, it'd be later in the draft. And then based on what we decide there, we're going to call out some prospects we like in the range we have identified. Next week, we're going to do the exact same thing with defense. And then as the month of April goes on, we're going to dive deeper and deeper into the draft. So by the time that the draft rolls around, if you stick with us on this podcast, you will be all set to cheer for guys that you think the Bills need to pull up and give to Roger Goodell to rate off on draft day. So Luca, the very first position on our list is quarterback. So currently on the Bills depth chart, they have three quarterbacks, Josh Allen, Case Keenum, and Matt Barkley. So Josh Allen obviously is quarterback one. There is no debate about that. Nothing could happen on draft day to change that. Case Keenum and Matt Barkley are both under contract for one more year. So they're both off the books after 2022, barring an extension. There's not really any argument you can make, in my opinion, to spend a first, second, third, or fourth round pick on a quarterback. It just doesn't make sense. You feel great about who your starting quarterback is. You trade a seventh round pick for an experienced veteran in Case Keenum to be that that security blanket, that Mitch Trubisky role from last year. He's got game experience. You're you're great there. And then Matt Barkley, you know, it's not necessarily what he brings on the field, although I think some people are just forgetting that he played pretty well against the Dolphins week 17 in 2020. But he has that Davis Webb role of practice squad, good in the room, good friends with Josh Allen. Luca, if the Bills did nothing at quarterback and just went into this season with the three they have, you would feel how about this position group? Absolutely okay. I would have no issues with it. I will also start with or continue with, I should say, that I don't expect them to do anything. You know, um, 
it, would they even take a late round flyer on a guy just to see unless the value for whatever ungodly reason of a guy sitting there in the sixth round, seventh round, and you're like, man, he's still from our board. We should probably take him. I don't think that guy exists in this draft, although I don't also think any quarterback is first round value in this draft. Maybe Malik Willis, but other th- no, I, I would have no issues not even looking at a quarterback. I don't think there's a need to. We talked about it last podcast. And you just mentioned it there. Josh Allen's irreplaceable. Nothing's happening to him. Case Keenum is a reliable, dependable, just perfect backup. And then Matt Barkley's that nice, friendly, happy smile that you get to see in the quarterback room every week and is going to make Josh Allen feel really nice. So, yeah, what what is what do you need to add in the draft at that position? I have no idea. I think the reason why I wouldn't say it's 100% locked that they won't take a quarterback is because I I think there's a chance they could try to do what they did with Jake Fromm a couple years ago was at the 2020 draft where you know Brandon Bean prioritizes the second quarterback, right? Like he made a big play for Mitch Trubisky last year. He made the trade for Case Keenum this year. I agree that quarterback two is important. So when you look at having a guy on a rookie contract for four years and having him under a cost-controlled contract, if you can hit on a guy in the fifth or sixth round that maybe you had a second or third round grade that fell, which is what I think probably happened to them with Jake Fromm, then you develop him, and then he's your quarterback two of the future, and you have a very cheap option that you like behind Josh Allen. But I still give that about a 10% chance of happening. I don't think it's a good use of assets. And then Luca, you made the best point. This is not a great quarterback class. However, one thing Bills fans should be rooting for on night one of the draft, Luca, is quarterbacks to come off the board. Absolutely. I think we talked about this off the mic last week a little bit, and we've talked about it in Discord. You want to root for quarterbacks. I, you know, I shouldn't even be out here slandering it. You know, I want people to think at all other fandoms that they need a quarterback. They need their next guy because every quarterback that gets drafted before your pick is not anything else being taken at that pick, which just leads you to more and more guys that could be there when you have to go. So yeah, you want those people in front of you to just scoop up those quarterbacks. Yeah, you're getting the next face of your franchise. I don't think you are, but hey, I'm very happy for you because why? That gave us more options. Yeah, we're fortunate we're in this spot where we don't have to gamble on one of these quarterbacks. I think if I were to gamble on one, if I were a team that needed one, it would be Malik Willis. To me, this draft just looks a lot like the 2013 draft with EJ Manuel, Geno Smith, Ryan Nassib, Mike Glennon. Obviously, I, I hope for these guys' sake, at least one of them becomes a solid starter, unlike that 2013 draft. But to Luca's point, you get these guys coming off the board, and that's another name at a position the Bills need that slides down the board. So come on, rest of you teams. Take your Malik Willis, take your Kenny Pickett, take your Matt Coral, take your Carson Strong. Get the bills on the clock and let 18 guys that we didn't expect to fall to us just be sitting there because all these quarterbacks just went off the board. So that was an easy one. And now we are going to transition to a difficult one, a very toxic conversation among Bills fans. It was even last year. Uh, we're going to talk about running back. Currently on the Bills running back depth chart, they have Devin Singletary at starter, Duke Johnson, Zach Moss, and Taiwan Jones. Now, Luca, I think now let me go back and say 
after 2022, the only one of those three that has a contract still is Zach Moss. Devin Singletary is in the last year of his deal. Duke Johnson and Taiwan Jones both signed one-year deals. Luca, if the Bills contract aside, go into 2022 with these four as their running backs, your reaction would be? Um, mute. Now, I say that with, I would like them to do something in the draft with this position. Does that mean spending the first round pick, which I know is the toxic topic you might be uh, calling out there? Yes, sir. Uh, I'm not sure on that yet. I kind of, that's kind of a situation where I don't talk myself into a running back in the first round ever, but at the same time, depending on how the draft works out the day of, and you're sitting there and it's like, wow, there's this huge rush on wide receivers. You're not liking where that position looks. Wow. All that first tier talent at corners gone. I'm not really sure on that. And you might be able to find value in the second. So you're sitting there and you're like, what's the best thing you can do to impact your team in a positive way with this pick? Because at the end of the day, your first round pick realistically should be a guy that can walk in and be effective and reliable and dependable day one. And if you're sitting there and say a Brees Hall who is looked at as one of the best halfbacks this year, if he's sitting there and you don't really care for the other options around it, I can probably talk myself into it and be okay with it in the first round. But to come back to your question, I would like to see the position added to in the draft at some point by let's say round four, because you want to get a guy that you can really put into the mix, hopefully, and make an impact. It doesn't have to be a first round guy. I think there's definitely other notable names in this draft that you could easily get in the second or third round. Or, I mean, there are guys that I see out there that even fall later than that, that I wouldn't mind seeing there if they just fell into our lap, say round four or five. But yes, bring in someone because we've discussed it at length and I won't get into it too much more. But you mentioned how Zach Moss is the only guy under contract after this season, I believe it was. But he might even not even be he might not even be on the roster come opening weekend. He might not even be there because again, we've talked about it. What does he really bring in anyways? So you definitely want to do something there. It's just how they go at it and where they go at it within the draft. That is definitely a discussion and one that is a heated one via social media. So I think for one, if they were to invest significantly in running back, which to me would be in the first four rounds of this draft, it would be a really bad sign for Zach Moss making this team. Devin Singletary, this is barring injuries. Obviously somebody could get their knee blown out in training camp and the whole thing's changed, but Devin Singletary and Taiwan Jones are locks for this roster. Singletary had a great finish to the end of last year. Taiwan Jones is arguably the best special teams player on this team and one of the best gunners in the league. He's making this team. So it comes down to if you draft a running back, that rookie in the first four rounds is also going to make the team. And the Bills under Sean McDormand have only carried four running backs. So that leaves a competition between Duke Johnson and Zach Moss. Now, could Zach Moss beat out Duke Johnson? Sure, I guess. Why not? It's it's Duke Johnson. It's not Adrian Peterson. But it it comes down to, for me, yes, Devin Singletary is up after this year. Fair. I don't, I'm not in the camp of 
giving second contracts to running backs unless they are just elite players. And to me, Devin Singletary is not an elite player. He's a nice player. He does well within this scheme. But in general, I think this running back room needs more juice. It needs somebody that is scarier with the ball in his hands, makes defenses not feel as good about playing too high against the Bills like they did so much. And then Stokes on Twitter responded to our question earlier about would you feel good about the Bills taking running back in in the first round? And he said, if they're committed to taking carries off of Josh, which I'm not 100% sure we should try to make a concerted effort to do, yes, having a guy we can actually trust to get hard yards and possibly bust a long run, sure. Another factor, having that fifth year built into the contract. Stokes brings up a good point, Luca, because we have heard Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott talk about at length how at this point in Josh's career, you really, as cool as it is to see him run, you want to try to reduce those opportunities for him to take hits, right? Like they won't come out and say it because they have so much respect for Cam Newton. But what you don't want to have happen is you get so obsessed with his highlight reel and what he can do with the ball in his hand that by the time he's 30 years old, he's like Cam Newton and he looks like he's 40 years old and he's just so beaten up and broken down. This player you have with Josh Allen, every year he plays at a high level is a championship window, regardless of the team around him. He is that good. He is that transcendent. If he is your quarterback, you have a chance to win. And if they are committed to taking hits off of him, well, it stands to reason that if you have a bell cow running back behind him, like a Jonathan Taylor, like a Derrick Henry, like a Dalvin Cook, that can, instead of in Tennessee, when it's fourth and one, you need a yard, you just run a quarterback sneak or a quarterback sweep. You just turn around and hand it to your Derrick Henry, Jonathan Taylor back. I get that. Not to mention the weather we talked about earlier. Um, I do think this is an offense that could very much thrive from having that kind of bell cow. My issue with the first round running back is twofold. One, I am not completely against taking running backs in the first round. I, I know there's this movement of you don't take running backs in the first round, and I get it because it's a cost savings, right? If you take a running back at pick 25, Joe Marino went over this unlocked on bills today. That guy is going to slot in as the 22nd highest paid running back in the league, which isn't terrible. But when you factor in, okay, let's take a cornerback or a wide receiver. They're closer to 50. If you look at what Greg Rousseau was last year, he was 92nd in the league as far as uh, defensive ends. So running back, they just don't make enough money for the savings you get with spending a first round draft pick to really feel like, oh, this is a cheap player. No, he's kind of already up there with some of the more expensive players. Also, look, you don't want to use outliers as examples for success. Like I always hated when people were like, well, you could find Tom Brady in the sixth round. So why spend a first round pick on a quarterback? Cool. Show me all the other examples of sixth round quarterbacks that turned out to be hall of famers. And then I'll listen to you. But it does happen every year, Luca, where you see these running backs that were taken in the third, fourth, fifth round. Look in San Francisco last year, right? They took Trey Sermon in the third round, and he was greatly outperformed by a running back taken after him by the same team. It happens every year. And to me, the other reason why I don't want to take a running back in the first round this year is I don't see a guy in this draft class that's worth it. I like Brees Hall. I've been trying my best to love him, and I just can't get there. I... I know he's fast. He ran a four three. He ran under four four at the combine, but to me, he doesn't look like an overly explosive breakaway back. Like 
Jonathan Taylor, right? Like this is a high ceiling for a player, but that's the kind of player I'd want to take in the first round. Jonathan Taylor, when he gets to the second level, you feel like, oh God, he's going to score. Brees Hall to me, sure, he has the ability to take a distance, but I don't know. And then you look at some of his contact balance and I don't think he always makes the best decision with the ball in his hands. And sure, is he an upgrade over Devin Singletary? Absolutely. But is it worth it enough to spend your first round pick, your best offseason asset on him? Not to me. He's not even my number one running back. Now, look, I will put my hand in the air. I'm not ever trying to pretend to be something I'm not. I don't sit here and break down all 22 film on these college athletes. I read people I trust. I I try to read as many scouting reports from different angles of people to figure out what's what. And then I just sit there and watch games where I can with the TV copy and just look for things that I value in players. And to me, the Michigan State running back, Kenneth Walker, looks like the best running back to me. The biggest knock on him is he doesn't offer you much in the passing game. He's not a very good blocker, and they really didn't throw him the ball much. One, you can't control that he doesn't get thrown the ball once that much. And two, Devin Singletary came into this league as not a very good blocker, and you can coach that up. What you can't coach up is Kenneth Walker has much more explosiveness than Brees Hall. I shouldn't say much, but it is noticeable. He has that second gear. And I think he's a little bit more of a violent running back than than Brees Hall. I like him slightly better, but I don't think there's a running back in this draft that's worth taking at 25. To me, I'd much rather take a stab on a guy in the fourth round, like a Ty Chandler, and just see what happens. And I don't know, Luca, maybe I'm I'm thinking about this wrong. Stokes makes a good point about having that bell cow back there. Is there a running back that you see as worth spending the 25th pick on? Short answer is no. At the end of the day, I'm actually a much bigger Brees Hall fan, clearly, than you. Um, I will say I've had him in my notes since early January, turn of the new year, and things like he was eighth in the nation and yards on just 253 carries, which put him substantially under everyone else around him. And he was he was also in the top 10 when it came to broken tackles and he gave the size and speed combination and everything like that. But would I spend a first round pick and pick 25 on him? No, I would absolutely not. Would I spend it on Kenneth Walker? No. Would I spend it on anyone else? Absolutely not. I think there's other things you can find of value at that position that just make way more sense, especially being that you can find, I mean, who knows? Could Kenneth Walker or Brees, I don't think Brees Hall falls to the second round where we would be picking, but could a Kenneth Walker? Perhaps. I do like Kenneth Walker as well. I think another thing that you may have not brought up, but was noticed in my spectating of college football. And as you mentioned, where you kind of do your analysis, mine just strictly until the month of March is from every Saturday watching college football. You know, I generally catch more of the noon game slate and then the 330 slate. I might kind of doze off or do things around the house and stuff, but then come back, come dinner time and then pack 12 after dark. That's where I live and breathe. You know, that's my life. Arizona State shout out. Um, but uh, forks up. But with that, with that in mind, Kenneth Walker, the one thing that he was really good at was he was clutch. Kenneth Walker was a guy that late in games with for Michigan State. He I mean, he would just find a way. He was a dog. He could just get that run you needed in a big moment to just seal it up, get the score if needed, whatever it was, whatever you needed, whether it was just two yards, whether it was 20 yards for the score, 
he got it. He he was that guy. And that's that's definitely something on top of being second in the nation in yards and led the nation in broken tackles. I mean, he's a he is the definition of a guy that you could potentially maybe flirt with the idea of bell cow. Now, do I think the NFL you need to have a bell cow? Do I think you need to have a guy you can really lean on? No, I don't think the NFL is that. I don't think it really needs to be that. You have those rare occasions like, you know, a Derrick Henry, you know, a Jonathan Taylor and those guys that can be that guy, but those are special breeds. And I mean, they only come one in a, what, let's see here, probably one every five, six, seven years. And you don't need to find that guy. You can easily get around that. You can find a guy that just plug and play and you don't need to be spending your 25th overall pick for that. You probably don't need to be spending your second round pick for that. And if at third, you just like a guy the most there, go for it. Why not? I know you are talking more fourth, fifth to basically you're looking at day three to take a jab at someone. And there's another guy I like, you know, and this is where I'm going to that Arizona state. And this is why I brought that up. Good old Rashad white out there. Mm-hmm. He was also that guy that I really feel like was hurt because he was at ASU who had a, very disappointing year this year, unfortunately, but he was the one shining light. He was the one guy that he gave you exactly what you wanted, and he brings just as much value in the rush game as he does the pass game. He's very reliable, very smart. I think the one thing that Rashad White really brings is his ability to understand what the what the need of whatever the play call is from him. He, he, whether obviously he, it's his number getting called or if it's just a pass play with him being, you know, a secondary read or maybe his, he's actually, there were legitimate play calls that you can point out with him where his design, because he was the offense at times, they were designing plays and he understood that his need for that play was to suck as much eye attention to him draw everyone in on him, do something to just free up everything else. And he would do it so perfectly. He would, he would sell, he would sell a play action just as well as you would see a quarterback do to try to suck things in. Like he really leaned into it. You knew he cared about faking that out, like things like that. And I think that that can go a long way, but then on top of it, he doesn't really, he could break out again. There's a reason you'd probably be getting him in the fourth, fifth round. But could, do I think he could add a great element to this offense? Yes. So as a day three guy, that would be one I would be very excited about for biased reasons and unbiased reasons. But, you know, you have other guys out there that day three could definitely make an impact. And I don't think I'd be upset with any running back coming into this just because a lot of them, you have a couple, you know, your Brees Halls, your Kenneth Walkers, you have those guys. Then you just have like all the rest it's almost like they're just a big pile of running backs that, you know, they might have a couple little things here or there that are different, but you're going to just do what you can with them. And you're going to hopefully in this offense, get the most you can out of them. Yeah. I think if you're going to take a running back in the first round, the three names that everybody talks about are Brees Hall, Kenneth Walker, and then Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M. Spiller doesn't have that explosion that Walker and even Hall have. But he is a weapon in the passing game. Um, He can catch passes. He can run routes. So really, it's one of those things like, what's your flavor? And, you know, when we're talking about draft prospects on this show and all the way up until the draft happens, I'm going to give you my opinion sitting here of what I would do. 
But if I'm being honest about what I think the Bills value, I would think Brees Hall would be their number one running back. And part of that is because they are a pass-centric offense and the stuff that he does in the passing game, I think is considered very valuable to them. And the other thing I'll point out is Joe Biscaglia from The Athletic, who is just fantastic with his draft coverage, is very good about pinpointing players that he thinks the Bills are into. And let's just say Joe doesn't really guess, okay? he he If he's pinpointing a player, sure, he does his research and he likes it. But if he calls out somebody, he probably has a good feel that the Bills are into that player. Now, ever since McDermott and Bean came in, they have been a lot more buttoned up as far as who they're targeting in the draft, inside information sources. I mean, there was a year one time before McDermott showed up that Joe was like, Joe Biscaglia was saying, okay, so I know the Bills really love um, Steph, um, Stefan Gilmore. And then he was like, and I know they love Sammy Watkins, but they also like Cordy Glenn. And it's like, oh my God, you're just nailing all the players the Bills are taking. And he was all over it. So that's somebody that I think you, you want to follow because there's certain kinds of draft evaluators out there, right? They're the ones like the draft network guys like Joe Marino, Kyle Krabs. They're making their lists really based off of film study, their own particular research, and guys that they think are the best players. And there is a great value in that because you are getting unbiased film research opinion, and that's great. Same with PFF. Now, the guys like the, the beat writers, Biscaglia, um, and then also the guys like Kuiper and Todd McShay and even Matt Miller to an extent, sure, they're watching film, they have their scouting service, but at the same time, they are talking to front offices, talking to people, and a lot of times they adjust their rankings based on what they're hearing. And I will say that, um, and then Daniel Jeremiah is the same way. Daniel Jeremiah and Joe Biscagula put out a mock this week, uh, last week, excuse me, and Brees Hall was the Bills pick at 25. So take that for what it's worth. It is still March. Things can change. But somebody out there is saying something that makes people believe that the Bills are in the Brees Hall. So I think Brees Hall is a really good running back. I don't want it to ever come off like I don't think he is. I think he's the kind of guy that whatever team he goes to, he's going to upgrade the running back position. He is head and shoulders better than Devin Singletary or anything the Bills have on their running back depth chart. My issue with him is more so I don't want to spend a first round pick on him when you already mentioned the name like Rashad White, but there's other names out there. There's James Cook, Dalvin Cook's brother. There's Brian Robinson from Alabama. A name I really like that I started watching last night is Pierre Strong Jr. from South Dakota State. I think he's a guy you could get in the fourth or fifth round. Last year, Luca, Michael Carter was talked about like an early second round pick, and he went in the fourth round. So Javante Williams was talked about as a first round pick. He went in the top of the second. So these running backs do fall. Would it surprise me if no running back went in the first round? And then all of a sudden, Brees Hall and Kenneth Walker are sitting there in the um, early to middle second round, and then the Bills could trade up and get one of those guys. That wouldn't surprise me. I think running backs will always fall. I think the issue is, do you risk becoming predictable? So Kenneth Walker, I love him. But if he's really only a runner and he can't really offer you much in the passing game, do you risk when he's on the field then, um, and you figure maybe like a platoon with him and Singletary, okay, the Bills are maybe more likely to run when he's on the field, or they probably aren't going to keep him in the block, and just things like that. You see the Patriots have run those running backs by committee, so it's just things to think about. My overall thought is the juice is not worth the squeeze to take a running back in the first round, 
but I don't think the bills are against it. So I would not be surprised if they did. I think Brees Hall of the three that we talked about Spiller and then, um, Kenneth Walker and then Brees Hall. I think Brees Hall would be the top of their list. I'd like to see Kenneth Walker and if they could somehow find a way to get him in the second round, great. But overall, I'm not super interested in spending a premium asset on running back. Before we get off of running back, Luca, maybe not even a player, but is there a specific trait that this current Bills running back depth chart is lacking that you would like to see present in whatever player they add to the group? I think this is going to be a theme going forward for a lot of positions, both today and in the future when we talk defense, but uh, speed. I think that's a little thing that this offense could use a little bit more of at that position. I think they could use it everywhere. And so I look at that. But if you take that aside, because that's just an easy answer, if you ask me, um, I you want someone that is just more reliable with hands. They did sign Duke Johnson. Uh, you discussed it, how he can be a guy on, you know, just quick swing outs, things like that, quick outs, whatever you're using them in the short passing game, you can most likely depend on. Um, I only say most likely because we don't know how he's going to fit within this offense, but you would assume it's going to be pretty smooth. Um, you would like another guy in there that maybe we could toy with and play around with in the passing game and see what we can do with that. I definitely think at that position, that's something that they're going to try to target. That probably goes into the Brees Hall thing, as you've discussed, and why maybe they would be most interested with him. But the easy answer and the answer that's probably going to be on repeat here is speed. Give me speed. All right. Well, that's a look at the running back situation. Before we go to another position that I think the Bills are going to be heavily paying attention to on draft day, let's knock out tight end because I think similar to quarterback, I don't see necessarily a glaring need here in the 2022 draft. Um, I'm going to loop or I'm going to lump fullback in with this too. So the current depth chart for the bills at tight end slash fullback is Dawson Knox, OJ Howard, Tommy Sweeney, Quentin Morris, and Reggie Gillum. Now what's interesting about that Luca is the only con tight end under contract after 2022 is Quentin Morris. So Dawson Knox is going into the final year of his deal. OG Howard signed a one-year deal. Tommy Sweeney was drafted the same year as Dawson Knox. So while it looks great right now with Knox and Howard, and we talked about last week, what that could mean for the 12 personnel, the Bills potentially could have their eye on the future and maybe decide to take a tight end just to brace for one or both of Knox and Howard leaving next year. That said, me personally... I don't see the Bills really investing a significant asset in a tight end this year. I think there's too many other needs where a player could come in. You talk about a first or a second or third round pick, even on a team as talented as the Bills, you want that player to find a way to contribute. And I just don't see a path for a rookie tight end to come in on this roster, barring an injury to a Knox or a Howard, and really make any kind of impact this year. And for a team that's in a Super Bowl window, that's just not ideal. So to me, maybe tight end, you take a late round flyer on a guy that's an intriguing athlete and you throw him on your practice squad and you hope you don't get sniped by somebody else. Or, you know, unfortunately, maybe this is somebody that comes in and you replace Tommy Sweeney's roster spot with a rookie that isn't necessarily active on game day, but you could spend a year developing. And ideally by next year, if OJ Howard goes and you assign Dawson Knox to an extension, 
then this guy that you draft in the fifth or sixth round is ready to be your tight end too. And you can still carry some of those 12 personnel principles. Luca, if the Bills don't add another tight end to this room in the draft, your reaction will be? Not surprised at all. I think you hit every point spot on. I There's no real path to this team for a tight end that you take. And I know, I think you went even as far as the third or fourth round, but I go as far as the sixth round, like sixth, seventh round. Maybe they take a flyer on a guy just to bring him in for, I mean, just for, you know, preseason, see what he can do. He's going to probably make the roster if they drafted him at that point, but you're just kind of bringing him in to see, Hey, maybe this is a guy that we can flirt around with a little bit more come next year after a full off season. You probably got to build him up if you drafted him then, or whatever the case may be, you, you know, it's going to be a raw prospect that you just, you're only bringing him in because you like what maybe he can provide you in the in the distant future. Maybe not super distant future, but distant future. Names that come to mind because I know we're probably not going to spend too much time on this. There's a Jalen Wiedermeyer. I'm probably butchered that name. <laughs> he's on my list too, so yeah, maybe we're yeah. onto something there. <laughs> I he's a guy that you definitely think, hey, you know, he's got some tools to him. He's a he's somewhat bigger guy, six foot five. He, he he seems like a fun guy that maybe in a nice offense could definitely be something. Maybe after a, an entire NFL offseason, another guy just to do another Arizona State shout out. There's Curtis Hodges. You only like a guy, and I don't think he's even a draft guy. Curtis Hodges is the definition of a raw prospect at tight end, but he could be like an undrafted guy they target. Um, and that's because he's six foot eight and two hundred and fifty pounds. I mean, six foot eight doesn't exactly grow on trees except for literal trees. So why not bring in a guy like him as a tight end and just kind of have him in there? You eventually you signed him as an undrafted. You have him work it through a preseason. Eventually, you're probably putting him on the practice squad because he is as raw as he is. Um, and you just kind of keep him around the building. You try to work him in. If someone scoops him up, you scoop him up, and you're not upset about it. But you're just kind of letting him feel it out and see if he can even be something in the NFL in the future. You know, that's kind of where I think their mindset is at tight end, if at all on tight end as a position. Another dart throw I threw out there is Jelani Woods, similar to Wiedermeyer. He's just an athlete, an untapped potential athlete, basically a ball of clay that you can try to sculpt into something and see what you have. The one thing I will say, and I did, I did not really look too deeply into this particular kind of player, but it did click with me is what the bills really don't have on their roster at tight end. Maybe Reggie Gilliam um, fits this mark a little bit is that Lee Smith tight tight end that's really like a, a sixth offensive lineman out there. And you even saw last year when they got down the stretch in the playoffs that Tommy Doyle did a lot of that tackle eligible things. And Tommy Doyle is a ridiculous athlete for a, t- for a tackle. So maybe they're comfortable with that. But if you get to the sixth or seventh round and the Bills see somebody that, you know, maybe not the pass weapon that you look for, but a really good run blocker, Maybe they take a stab at that. I just don't see a lot of value in that. I think they're comfortable with Tommy Doyle playing that position. Plus, it gets him on the field. Yeah, I'm with you. I think if the Bills take a tight end in this draft, it's going to be late. It's going to be pretty non-consequential. And um, overall, though, this tight end class to me, look, there's not a Kyle Pitts in this class, right? There's not a TJ Hawkinson. I think the highest rated guy is TJ, or sorry, Trey McBride. He's a good prospect, not a great prospect. I think he right now he's projected to go early day two. So I don't see a game changer in this class that teams are going to be fighting with themselves to get. Um, So 
The Bills are in a good spot with Dawson Knox and OJ Howard. Anything they get out of this draft is going to be late or maybe even undrafted free agency, and they'll see if they can maybe get a lotto ticket scratch off there. All right, Luca, let's talk about wide receivers because to me, when you talk about things the Bills could do in the first round, you don't get a lot of positions listed off before wide receiver comes out of my mouth. And it might be my favorite idea in the first round. Let's currently take a look at what the Bills have in house. They have Stefan Diggs, who's obviously the number one, the alpha of the room. They have Gabriel Davis. They have Jamison Crowder, who they signed a week and a half ago to basically be the Cole Beasley replacement. They did bring back Isaiah McKenzie. And they have Jake Kumaro. And that right now is the projected five that will be active on game day. Uh, beyond that, they still have Gentry. They have Hodgins. They have Marquez Stevenson. So they have a bunch of guys. They they really could do nothing to their wide receiver group and pretty much have a training camp roster ready. So Luca, taking contracts out of it, because they're, they're really fine beyond 2022. Everybody's back except for Crowder and Kumaro. Um, everybody's back. Gabe Davis, um, Diggs, McKenzie, Stevenson, you know, even Gentry and Hodgins. If the Bills do nothing at receiver and they go into this season with Diggs, Davis, Crowder, McKenzie as their top four receivers, I'm not going to ask you how you'd feel about that because I don't want to get into a would you take a receiver? How is that wide receiver core in your mind? I'm glad you didn't ask that question and let it with what you did instead, because I do want to say there is still a level of comfort with where the receiver core is currently at somewhat. I think, you know, of course, the last game we played, Gabe Davis definitely gave us a comfortable feeling of, well, he's going to be a guy moving forward. (laughs) I I think uh, it's pretty safe to say. Um, So you have Diggs, Davis. You got the Crowder McKenzie dynamic in there. Um, it's definitely something that you look at, and then you still have Stevenson and and Hodgins and stuff like that, where you're like, okay, I mean, we're just gonna make this offense work with guys we already have had in the room, and then you just brought in, you know, Crowder to change things up just a little bit. Am I upset about that? No, stuff like that. If you're taking, you know, the question out of, uh, would I want us drafting a receiver, and you know, things like that. Am I happy with where it's currently at? I would say I'm okay with it. I would say there's not a level of being uncomfortable. Uh, you know, it's it is what it is, and it's not exactly like it's a receiver core that I when I look at receivers and the core and what we have there, I don't think Josh Allen would be looking at it and be disappointed. So I if Josh Allen's not disappointed with the receiver room that's currently in place then I got to be okay with it too. And that's how I look at that. You know, what's interesting to me when I look at this group is, so Diggs and Davis are going to be here, right? McKenzie's going to be here. Crowder's probably going to be here. He signed a one-year deal. He's considered a really solid player. But so when you look at a team like the Bills, you start to think about what's an injury or two that could really derail their season, right? So we talked about quarterback earlier. If Josh Allen goes down for a month, you feel like, okay, Case Keenum can probably win you two games if he has to. If he plays four, keep your season on the rails. Um, Running back, kind of replaceable. You feel like even if Singletary goes down, they'll find somebody to go in and carry the load. Pass first offense, it's good to go. 
tight end. Dawson Knox goes down. OJ Howard probably fine for a short period of time, even if he has to play the rest of the season. You know, you're not in a terrible spot there. What they haven't done yet is they haven't replaced Emmanuel Sanders' role in this offense, and that is your backup outside receiver. Now, I understand Emmanuel Sanders was the starter outside, and Davis was the primary backup at all three positions, but Davis now steps into that Emmanuel Sanders role, and they don't have a backup boundary receiver. Right now, if, God, knock on whatever, if Stefan Diggs were to go down, you'd be looking at, in my opinion, Gabe Davis and Jake Kumaro on the outside, because to me, Isaiah McKenzie and Crowder are both much more suited for the slot. I don't see them being able to play consistently on the outside. And that's a problem. And before you say like, oh, you can't plan for injuries. Keep in mind last year on Thanksgiving, the Bills saw their number one cornerback go down. And all of a sudden Dane Jackson was thrust into a very important role and he played very well for himself but injuries happen. And when a team is as stacked as the bills are, and you don't have a lot of immediate needs, one thing you have to ask yourself is beyond, okay, what's the contract situation look like in 2023? You have to ask yourself, what does our team look like if we lose our best guy at this position? Because last year, if you would have lost Diggs, you would have had Beasley, McKenzie, Davis, Sanders, and Knox catching passes. And I'm, there's not a scary alpha in that group, but I'm pretty sure Josh Allen could have found a way to score points with that group. This year, if you lose Diggs, you're not going to replace Stefan Diggs, but now Gabe Davis and Kumaro with whoever between McKenzie and Crowder inside, and then obviously your two tight ends, it's not terrible, but my gosh, that's that's not the fastball that Sean McDermott was talking about. So when I look at this Bills wide receiver group and you look at what they need and it's weird to say it because I think their two best receivers right now are Diggs and Davis, both primary outside guys. I think their need is a guy that can be on the outside. And if they were to spend a first round pick on an out on a wide receiver that can play outside, I don't think that's a wasted pick where that guy comes in and it's just, okay, he's going to play if, if Diggs or Davis get hurt. No, I think what happened when Cole Beasley was on the team, a slot specific wide receiver who excelled at that role, a lot of people think, okay, he's a slot receiver. He's a slot receiver. No, Stefan Diggs can play slot. Gabe Davis can play slot. Some of these receivers we're going to talk about in the draft can play slot. You could have a a starting three receiver of your first round pick Diggs and Davis, and you can mix and match who's in the slot and move guys around. It wouldn't be always, well, Cole Beasley's on the field. He's in the slot. A lot of teams do do that. They don't have a specific slot receiver. So with that being said, I think even though it looks like, okay, Crowder's only here on a one-year deal. You don't know we have McKenzie. Maybe the the goal is to find a slot receiver. I want to find a guy that can play outside because to me, there's not an injury on this team that could tank the season quicker outside of Josh Allen. Um, Really, on the offensive side of the ball, more than wide receiver as it stands right now. So I'm going to spin it forward. Luca. Do you think the Bills could or should use a first round pick on a wide receiver? Yes. And I'm just going to say yes, because could and should. Yes. Um, I agree 1000% with the thought and statement that you made with in regards to uh, Diggs goes down and all of a sudden you definitely find yourself in a predicament where, well, what the hell do we do now? 
right? And it's just because you look at the impact he made coming in and everything fell where it, you know, it did. And it just felt so good that all of a sudden you have this dynamic guy drawing all the attention and still is able to produce with all that attention. And then all of a sudden you have all this free space for everyone else. Well, all of a sudden take that away and we get back to where we were, you know, not saying Davis isn't capable of being a somewhat dependable guy. It's just, I wouldn't expect him to be as productive with attention potentially as an outside receiver. And then, you know, you might have to get caught with him have being stuck outside because you just have to put someone of his skill set out there potentially more often than not now that Diggs is out. So because at the end of the day, and I think uh, a word I don't believe you mentioned there is it's all about matchups. And that's where that kind of moving pe- people around that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to create the mismatch. You're trying to create the matchup that you really want to then exploit. And that's why you don't see the conventional slot guy just always be there. You don't see that being as much of a thing as it maybe once was. So now you come to this draft and you're like, yeah, it would be really nice to find that guy that can play outside and really be someone that hopefully can be dependable you know, on day one as an outside target to keep the train rolling. God forbid if digs went down, especially. So the answer to your question is yes, absolutely. They should and could do such a thing like spend the 25th overall pick on a guy. I'm not going to name names because I know wide receiver is your favorite one in this draft. So I'll kick it back over to you. And uh, if you want to start name dropping, let's say 40 guys, go ahead. (laughs) So I'm not going to name 40 guys. Um, This is considered a pretty deep wide receiver class. And depending on which mock draft you read, you see four or five, even six names going in the first round. I just made the case and you made the case for the Bills needing to take a wide receiver, needing to invest heavily in a wide receiver. This offense, despite having the names at the top that gets you excited, needing to inject some more talent behind Diggs and Davis to be ready to go. And Luca, I might surprise you here. There's only two names I'd be willing to take at 25 for the Bills. The first name is Jamison Williams from Alabama. The second name is Christian Watson. Now I know what you're thinking. There's a lot of names that people are seeing in the, in the mock drafts that should and could be gone by the time the bills pick. And there's a lot of names out there that fans have been excited about. But to me, what this offense needs to be just the absolute best it can be. The one dynamic they don't have on this offense. We talked about it with running back is they don't have a game breaker at wide receiver. They don't have that guy that can catch a ball five yards up the field and take it 70 yards for a touchdown. They don't have that guy that makes a defense scared anytime they don't have safety help over the top. And when you talk about what Diggs can do with drawing coverage, we already know Gabriel Davis can take advantage of single coverage. We know how much coverage Dawson Knox and potentially OJ Howard are going to draw. And then obviously the magician that is Josh Allen is going to confuse coverage just by doing some of the wizardry he does behind the line of scrimmage. If you want to make it all come together and maximize this offense, you need to find yourself an absolute game breaker. And to me, that's number one, Jamison Williams, and not far behind him, Christian Watson. Before I get into those two, let me tell you why I only have two on my list. Because for the other names that you hear about in the first round, Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Drake London, 
Um, I know I'm Traylon Burks. I feel like while all those guys are good and certainly would be fun to see on the Bills offense, there are so many names behind them that'll be there in the second and third round that bring similar skill sets that I just would rather see the Bills address other needs and then take someone like a George Pickens or take someone like a John Mitchie or a Jahan Dotson or a Calvin Austin. I think there's just other names you can add in. I don't even know if there would be a drop-off. And Alec Pierce is another name that came up on Chris Sims' podcast this week. So for me, you're spending that 25th pick. I want somebody that comes in and just changes this offense and adds a complete new dynamic. To me, Jamison Williams is the guy. There's obviously the issue with the ACL tear, but Luca, that guy is a bolt of lightning. He catches the ball and he's going to either make you miss a tackle because he breaks tackles or he's just going to run by you. It is scary to see how much faster he is than SEC defenders trying to tackle him. He is a weapon. He reminds me somewhat of Tyreek Hill. He's not Tyreek Hill. The comparison I have heard, he's Jerry Judy with a turbo button. I think that fits perfectly. Um, Chris Sims said that he's like a bulkier version of Devontae Smith and a faster version of Jerry Judy. Obviously, there's Alabama comparisons there, so you understand that. But if you look at this offense with Stefan Diggs drawing double coverage, and you have Dawson Knox and OJ Howard, and you have Gabe Davis, and then you throw in a Jamison Williams who can just run by anybody on defense, how are you going to stop that? The idea of that gets me so excited. And then you think about playoff Josh Allen unlocking his running. This team is going to be unstoppable. That's the kind of weapon this team needs. That's the, what I want to spend the 25th pick on. Outside of that, Jahan Dotson, Garrett Wilson, Drake London, good players. I don't know that I care enough about what they would add to this offense to spend the 25th pick when I feel like I could get some similar value in the second round with guys of similar skill sets. So before I go down the list and just throw you a word salad of wide receiver opinions, am I nuts for saying there's only two receivers I would spend the first pick on? No, I think you're absolutely spot on. My list was exactly the same. The funny part to me, though, is I have them reversed. Christian Watson is the guy that I look at at pick 25. So if you had to give me Christian Watson or Jamison Williams at 25, they're both available. I think I go with Christian. I think I go with the six foot five guy that just and, and going into the combine, I think it was Jamison. And I think I, it was Jamison that I would go over Christian. The athleticism was not necessarily documented, we'll call it. But as soon as the combine came and he ran a four three six, I believe it was, and he's six foot five, and he just has all these unbelievable athletic attributes to him. Yeah, I want that guy. I, I want I want the one that has the freak athletic attributes that then you just need to take and mold ever so slightly, just kind of let it just you don't want to tame it. It's a Mustang. Let it let it run free. You just kind of want to give it a little hint here or there. Give it little tips. And you got a guy like Diggs that can be like, hey, by the way, try this with your footwork or whatever it may be, right? Just kind of mold him into a professional. Mold him into a NFL wide receiver so that now you take that raw athleticism and just get the absolute most you can get out of it. And this offense and the people around it would be able to do that, in my opinion. But I don't think you miss on that point. I think you're spot on. And the best part is you brought up Dotson. So Dotson's a name, and I'm going to go into this real quick, that I've seen as well being in that first round category. 
And just for physical specs, you know, five foot 11, just over a four, four forty, definitely a good wide receiver. And yet on my list that I wrote back in January, a guy that kind of stuck out to me was Wandell Robinson, five foot 11, just over a four, four combine. They're both just over 180 pounds. They're exactly the same. I'm seeing Wandell fall in the second round. It's, it's almost identical. And honestly, to me, Robinson was a better playmaker when it came to, you know, getting to open space and turning it into a house call. I, I remember he just popped a little bit more to me. That's why I liked him a lot. You know, you're watching the Kentucky games and he was that one threat for Kentucky in the SEC that, you know, everyone had to be watching him because if he didn't, it was, as I said, a house call. So you have that, you know, it's, it's all an evaluation of, you know, if you're going to draft this guy in the first, do you really do it because, you know, you won't find it later on? Well, if the answer is no, then why are you doing it in the first place? And you're not going to find a Christian Watson. You're not going to find a Jamison Williams. I think everything you said about Jamison Williams is spot on. And in no capacity would I be upset with Jamison Williams, you know, being taken over Christian. Like, I, I don't get me wrong. I love them both to death. I think they would be great additions. It's just those are the two guys that you go. Yeah, you're not finding that guy past that pick. You're not you're not going to be able to do that unless that guy themselves somehow fell. And then all of a sudden you're, you're finding yourself trading up to like the third pick in the second round to make sure you get him before he falls even further. God forbid, or just gets taken by, you know, the Jags and wastes away his career. Sorry, Jags. Um <laughs> And so, yeah, I think it's not outlandish. It's not crazy to have that thought process because there's so many other guys. And then there's guys like Calvin Austin, the third, who are like those nice, you know, Rondell Moores, you know, I'm going to shout out myself for calling him out last year. Unfortunately, he wasn't a bill. He's a Cardinal, but you know, you have those guys that can really be dynamic in their own unique way. But again, they're not going to be a first round talent. That's not a guy you take there. That's probably a guy you find in the day two. And, you know, see what you got. Uh, who knows? Right. So, no, I think I think everything you said was good. I'm excited to hear more names if that's where you're going to go with this direction here. But at the end of the day, yeah, those are the two you look at at pick 25. Everyone else you're looking at day two, most likely. And you just kind of find whichever ones you felt more comfortable with after all your assessment. So if you're not doing it already, you should follow Math Bomb on Twitter. It's uh, Kent Lee Platt. And he has this calculation called a relative athletic score, which basically takes all these metrics into consideration and it grades players against other players historically at their position, right? So like Christian Watson, he has hand size, arm length, height, weight, vertical, broad jump, yada, yada. You guys know 40 yard dash, 20 yard split, shuttle, three cone. And it after it um, calculates all those measurements, it gives you a rating on a scale of one to 10, obviously using decimal points to get a little bit more precise rating. Christian Watson is a 10 out of 10. The last receiver to have a 10 out of 10 was Calvin Johnson. He has Calvin Johnson-like athleticism. Am I saying he's Calvin Johnson? No. Calvin Johnson was a transcendent player that went in the top five of the draft and was wildly considered the best wide receiver prospect to come out since Larry Fitzgerald, and he lived up to the hype. Christian Watson has that athletic capability. He's not that type of prospect, but when you listen to Chris Sims talk about wide receivers, I love Chris Sims on the draft because he's not afraid to go against the grain and say things that other people aren't saying. Cal- Kristen Watson 
didn't have the elite stats that you see from some of these guys, like the two guys at Ohio State, Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. But his argument is, if you put Christian Christian Watson on Ohio State, are you thinking he's not going to produce in an offense that can run the ball down your throat? So the defense, especially the Big Ten defenses that aren't Michigan and Penn State that don't have a bunch of blue chippers all over the field, has to dedicate eight players just to stopping the run. And now all of a sudden, wide receivers are just running running one on one against you know off covered corners and then linebackers over the middle. You don't think Christian Watson could have succeeded in that scenario? I think he very much could have. Jamison Williams, I would have him above Christian Watson just because we've seen it, but I love them both. And the issue with Jamison Williams is he would not even be a discussion for the Bills at 25 if it wasn't for him tearing his ACL late in the year. Um, The issue with him is he's probably not going to be ready for training camp, may not be able to help you in September or October, in my opinion, who cares? because you're drafting this guy for the next five to 10 years, not for the next five to 10 months. And if he's not ready to go until November, I could make the argument that's a good thing for the Bills because that's eight weeks of film without him in your offense that teams you're going to play in the playoffs can't even really use because he's going to change what your offense looks like when he's on the field. He just adds a dimension that nobody has. And that's not anything against Stefan Diggs. Stefan Diggs is one of the best receivers in the NFL and would be the best receiver on the Bills, regardless of who they draft. Don't take this the wrong way. This is adding a dimension to the offense. What Jamison Williams and Christian Watson potentially could add to this offense is they could change the offense. And that's what I want with pick 25. The reason why I wouldn't put Drake London in that conversation, and I think Drake London is a great player. He just, to me, is bigger. He wins. He he. There's this knock on him like because he's not a 4-3 guy that he can't separate. He absolutely can separate. He uses great technique to separate. That's not an issue. He's a huge receiver. He has a huge catch radius. But to me, if you added a Drake London to this offense in the first round, or if you added an Alec Pierce to this offense in the second or third round, I don't know how different this offense really is, right? Because Diggs is the one, Davis is the two, you got Knox, you got Howard, you have Crowder doing what Crowder does. And then, you know, you figure that, you know, Drake London would be your primary slot and he could obviously fill in outside if Diggs or Davis got hurt. Um, But I think Alec Pierce could do a lot of that too. I want guys that change things about this offense. That's where the speed comes in. And if you don't get Jameson Williams or Christian Watson, That's where, okay, you take a cornerback that maybe we'll talk about on next week's show. You take an offensive lineman, you take a running back if that's your flavor. And then in the second round, you take a Calvin Austin that Luca mentioned. You still get that speed threat added to your offense. A name I love is George Pickens. I think this is a guy that probably would have been a first round pick had he not gotten injured last year. He came back for the championship game and made a tremendous grab. But unfortunately, I don't think he's fully healthy because he ran in the mid four fours. And to me, My untrained eye looked like he was a guy playing much faster than that. I think that's a guy that could represent tremendous value if he falls to you in the second round. So if you pair whatever you do in the first round, that's not receiver with a George Pickens, sign me up for that all day long. Uh, John Mechie, the other guy from Alabama, I think is a really solid player. A guy I'm struggling with a little bit. I don't know if you have an opinion on him, Luca, is Sky Moore. I know a lot of people think that he is an intriguing prospect in the second round. And he reads well from what I've watched, from what I've read. But then when I watch him, their offense is just so RPO heavy that 
it seems like every time he catches the ball, it's quarterback fake the ball, the running back, pull the ball out, and then throw it over a blitzing linebacker to a wide open receiver. And I just don't know what to take from that, right? Like, I don't know how to really translate that to what the NFL is and how can he get open? How can he win? You know, the guys that are a lot smarter than me are writing scouting reports and love them. To me, Sky Moore was a tough one to get a good feel for. And then I will say, I think, you know, I said I would only take Christian Watson and Jamison Williams with the second, with the 25th pick. Um, you know, if for whatever reason, Drake London fell to 25 and those two guys were gone, it's not like that would be a bad pick, right? Like Drake London's a really good player. Another name I think Bills fans should probably familiarize themselves with because I could see the Bills really falling in love with him, Traylon Burks. I watched him. I wasn't overly impressed because it's kind of like you hear about how great this movie is. All your friends are telling you how good this movie is. And then you go watch the movie and you're like, okay, it was a good movie. Like it was cool. It didn't change my life. Like I don't really want to go back out and watch it again tomorrow. And then you all all of a sudden in your mind, you're thinking, okay, that was a bad movie because it didn't live up to the expectations. That's what happened to me with Burks is I kept hearing like, this is the guy that's going to be the next Debo Samuel. And he is a moving chess piece. That's going to change an offense. And I watched him and you know, he was good. He was very physical after catching the ball. That was very noticeable. And he's almost like a running back once he catches the ball. But I wouldn't say he was overly explosive. I I don't think he is the most precise route runner in this, this class by any means. I think when you look at this Bills offense in the short term, though, when you have Davis and Diggs outside, what you could do with a Traylon Burks in the slot as that moving chess piece would be a lot of fun. So I could see why the Bills, if they're not necessarily thinking about like, okay, who's my long-term answer at wide receiver, that stretch, if they're more so thinking like in 2022, who could we put in there and just be a lot of fun and really give defenses headaches? I think Traylon Burks would fit that. And I could see them really liking him at 25. It wouldn't be my favorite idea, but I would understand it. Do you have a particular thought on Traylon Burks? I don't really. I also kind of feel a little bit of a wanting more with Traylon Burks. I think, you know, he is a nice, sizable guy that can be utilized in many different fashions. I do think the Debo references, and I know you personally understand, I'm not a huge fan of comparisons like that, especially to all pros or, you know, Hall of Famers. I don't like comparing prospects to those kinds of guys. But it's understandable how people can kind of relate one to one. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, Traylon Burks um, and guys of that nature, I think all the guys you just addressed, you know, again, are the, if the two that both you and I have discussed are gone and they end up taking a Traylon Burks, a Drake London, as you said, are we going to be upset? I don't think we would be. You, you know, you take it as they really are trying to give. Josh Allen and this offense, another dynamic weapon and create more of those matchups I talked about, you know, wherever they can, while also getting some insurance policy and kind of a quick note to backtrack a little bit. I think what makes this wide receiver class even more interesting and what makes everyone focused on it and noticing how deep it is, is not only because of all the talent in it, but also 
the fact that the wide receiver market has now hit a point, which I'm sure we will discuss more in the future, has hit a point where you're almost doing a cost evaluation in regards to, do I really want to pay anyone on my roster in the next year or two when I could just draft one of these guys that could be serviceable and maybe even give a similar like production to this offense for the next four to five years at a discount, essentially? That's something that is definitely needed to be considered because if you say come back to the bills at pick 25 with a contract situation that they may have to deal with with digs which again we don't have to get into into specifics but you know and there's a corner that they like and a receiver that they like the business decision in them and the financial decision in them may lean to the wide receiver because at least now you can guarantee four to five years of this guy that you hopefully should be able to give you very good production at a cheaper rate than what you're going to have to pay digs come, you know, next year or in two years. So you're elevating your team right now while also potentially doing something to benefit you financially moving forward beyond this season. So it's just something to add in there, but yeah, back to it. Yeah. Traylon Burks and all those guys, um, you know, they, they don't move the ticker as much. It's unfair to compare them to a Christian Watson or a Jameson Williams, but they don't move the ticker. I don't think that they jump off the page. And I also wouldn't be upset if they pass them over with that 25th pick, say, to then, you know, explore other options in the second round, as you have said. Yeah, I think after Watson and, and Williams, it's really going to depend what's on the board for me, right? Like you said, I, I wouldn't be upset if they took Burks as long as it wasn't at the expense of taking a blue chip player at another position I think the Bills could use. If I really just felt like, oh God, they were determined to get a wide receiver in the first round. So you know, they didn't get X, Y, and Z, and all of a sudden Traylon Burks or Chris Olave were there. I mentioned Chris Olave because he's another guy similar to Burks, where when you look at what his role could be this year, man, that would be a lot of fun looking at him in the slot with Diggs and Davis outside. I don't want to sound like I'm knocking Chris Olave. He's a really fun player. I think in the slot on this team, he could be a real weapon. He just doesn't have that game breaker. I'm going to break the game wide open just by catching a five yard slant and making everybody on your defense miss like a Williams or like what I think a Watson can do. And that's what I desperately want, but there is some value to be had. And I think there are some other guys that bills could take at 25. If the board falls in a certain ways where other guys at other positions, particularly on cornerback that we're going to talk about next week that are off the board where I'd be okay with it. You mentioned the contract situation and it is spot on. You have Dawson Knox, when you just look at the Bills pass catchers, Dawson Knox has one year left. He's probably going to be primed for a big payday. Could be a franchise tag candidate because the franchise tag for a tight end is not that cost prohibitive. And then you have in two years, Stefan Diggs and Gabe Davis coming off the books. And look, two years is a lifetime in the NFL. You don't know if Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean will be here in two years. I'd like to think they will, but the NFL, sometimes things move fast. But when you look at what Christian Kirk got from the Jacksonville Jaguars, and now you project Gabe Davis is going to be in a featured receiver role, a starting role on a team that has Josh Allen for the next two years. He's almost certainly going to go to the market with better stats than Christian Kirk. If you just, if he just stays healthy over the next two years, is he going to be a guy that's looking at what the market is then 15, $20 million a year. And then Stefan Diggs, Brandon Bean came out today somewhat backtracked from what he said a couple of weeks ago where he was like, look, we're not in any hurry to get Stefan Diggs a new deal. Contracts get done when they get done. Today he sounded a little bit different, 
made it sound like we're always looking to do what's right by our players. We're open to it. We talked to Stefan all the time. Sounded a lot more to me like a guy that was understanding that Stefan Diggs right now is one of the biggest values in the NFL. And as cool as it is from a Bills fan's point of view, to be like, man, we have this all worldwide receiver who's making less than Christian Kirk. The reality of the situation is Stefan Diggs has been here for two years. He's been a model citizen. He's been huge for the growth of Josh Allen, both on and off the field. And he's been huge for the growth of guys like Gabe Davis and Isaiah McKenzie. It's time to pay Stefan Diggs. That number is going to be uncomfortable and it's going to be a real number up against the cap. Maybe in the short term, it saves you some money if you can, you know, backload it a little bit. And there's always going to be the fake money on the end. Stefan Diggs is going to be very expensive and he's going to be here. So when you look ahead two years, it's going to be tough to keep a Gabe Davis, especially if you've paid a Dawson Knox. So you want to start getting some of those young guys, the blue chippers in the pipeline to keep that fastball. Because the worst case scenario, I think, is two years from now, Stefan Diggs is super expensive. You can't keep Gabe Davis. And then you haven't really addressed anything with wide receiver because all you've done is get guys like Emmanuel Sanders and Jamison Crowder as solid one-year band-aids. And then two years from now, the cupboard's bare and you're going to the draft just hoping to find guys that can click with Josh Allen. I think it's better to get them in, even if they're wide receiver four for year one. And then by the time next year rolls around or the year after that, they hit the ground running. Um, Let's see. We've talked about, okay, the Ohio State wide receivers. I talked about Olave a little bit. Garrett, Garrett Wilson. I want to make sure I have his name right. Garrett Wilson, man, he, he's a guy that gets a lot of steam from guys like Kuiper and Jeremiah. Everywhere I look, he's rated as like a top one, two or three wide receiver. I don't see it, Luca. I don't see anything special about his game. Again, I don't have, I don't have the trained eyes for this, but when I watch him, I don't see game breaking speed. I don't see game breaking size. I don't see a guy that really does a lot of impressive things when the ball's in his hand, as far as making guys miss and making plays go a long way. You know, it kind of reminds me, and this is going to date myself a little bit, but there was a wide receiver that went in the first round of the Titans, I think about 10 years ago, Kendall Wright. And it was like, I did not understand that there was nothing about that guy that to me screamed blue chip player, but he went in the first round. And I think Garrett Wilson has some, you know, interesting metrics. He ran, I think under a four, four, I don't see that when I watch his highlights, when I watch his games, to me, if he goes before the bills pick at 25, great. Thank you. Take Garrett Wilson. I'm saying all this and we both know now the bills are probably going to get Garrett Wilson at 25 and I'm going to have to eat my (laughs) words. I don't know if you have a strong opinion on him, but to me, that's a guy that I just, I don't see as high as he's being talked up. There's so many guys I like better than him. I don't think Garrett Wilson's going to be there at 25 when it comes to draft day. So first and foremost, that will not be happening, which I'm also going to lead into my answer of I'm with you. I have this thing and I, it's a bias in me that I just can never overlook. And it involves the school of Ohio state. I have nothing against the school of Ohio state when it comes to alums. So first and foremost, if there are any OSU alums out there that listen to this, it is nothing against you. Um, but over the years of an, as being an NFL fan, as a bills fan, as a Cardinals fan, whatever it may be, because of course I kind of grew up in that age where as much as you are a team fan, you naturally, cause fantasy football and everything was, you know, really rising through my youth. 
you know, you're paying attention to individuals. And I, I watched a lot of college football. I've been watching college football all these years. I mean, guys like Ted Ginn and things, you know, players that come out of Ohio State, I feel like there's a repeating theme with them and they never, you know, and this is offensive side of the ball because defensively, of course, that's a whole nother thing. And there are very successful guys from Ohio State defensively. But I feel like over the years, somehow, some way, Ohio State offensive players never live up to the billing. And yet here we are year in, year out. There's always an elite Ohio State offensive prospect. And, you know, the metrics are there. He's, you know, six foot. He, he did run a sub four, four. He ran a four, three, eight. I believe it was. I mean, he, he has all the metrics that you want in a guy and you look at him and he, he has the stats to back up what seems to be the skill and it's all there. But then when you watch the film and you give him the eye test, is it really there when you isolate him and you take away what's happening in the game and everything like that? No, you know, Garrett Wilson against Purdue, I think it was this past year, had a remarkable game. I think he really exploded in that game. It was also Purdue. And I know you can only play the people in front of you, but the the skill gap difference between the defensive backs of Purdue and the receiving and offensive threat in general of Ohio State is massive. And a guy of his athletic skill set is just naturally going to be able to take over. Well, now you're getting into the NFL everyone's an elite athlete all right you're in the nfl for a reason and he seems like that kind of guy that hey if he works out good for him and you know it's everything's good but as you said the eye test isn't there so if he doesn't work out it's almost fitting you know it almost seems as if yeah he has all the athletic things he just didn't have that ability as a wide receiver to then turn it into the craft of being a receiver at the top level. And that's what it is. He was just an elite athlete at an elite program, just dominating because guess what? No one else could match up to them as a program. And I think that's, it's a bias in me and I'm going to stipulate that through and through when it comes to Ohio state and their offensive talent, it always creeps in my mind. So it's so hard for me to get over that hurdle. You know, so there is that. But at the end of the day, I do agree with you. I don't see it. I don't understand. He will be taken by pick 20, we'll say. And I will have no problem with that. I wish him the best at whichever team he ends up at. And hey, maybe he succeeds. Maybe he gets drafted by, say, uh, God, I'm trying to think. I don't even know. The Panthers. I, I I don't even think that would be possible. But say he gets drafted by some team and he succeeds. Good for him. But I'm not going to be surprised if it doesn't. And I won't be surprised when he does get picked early and then unfortunately becomes a disappointment. That is where I see him falling. Yeah, and we're going to wrap up wide receivers here in a second. Chris Sims made a great point on his podcast, and I, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. Ohio State can just overwhelm you with their offensive line and their running game, and it just creates so many passing lanes for their wide receivers. And he made the point about Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson running 20-yard post routes. And then if you watch it side-by-side with a Jamison Williams post route, where Olave and Wilson, it's just the perfect look for a post route. Linebackers are sucking up to stop the run. Cornerbacks in off coverage. You know, there's no real safety help there. And it's a wide-open throw, and they make a 20-yard catch, and it's great. Where 
Jamison Williams, the defense is doing everything they can to try to take him out of the play. The cornerback is in his face. The safety's coming over to help. And he just beats you with freak athleticism and speed. So that's what I want. I'm willing to roll the dice on the ACL situation. And I want the Bills to add a game breaker. But if they don't in the first round, I wouldn't panic. There's definitely some guys there that can come in and help this passing game and help them keep that fastball. All right, Luca, we've talked about skill position players. We've talked about quarterbacks. Now let's talk about the hog mollies. Let's talk about offensive tackle. Let's go. Let's talk about the big boys. We have offensive tackle. The Bills right now have Deion Dawkins and Spencer Brown, and those are their bookend tackles for the next few years. Spencer Brown has three years left, cost-controlled, third-round pick from last year, smash hit. I don't think he played as well as a lot of as Bills Mafia wants to give him credit for, but he really did come in and stabilize that position. And when you look at his athleticism and his upside, factoring in what Aaron Cromer can do for him, I think people are really excited about what his future can be. Deion Dawkins had a Pro Bowl year, slow start to the year, really seemed to struggle coming off of COVID in training camp, ramped it up um, in November, December, and really played super strong down the stretch, starting with that New England game where he came off the bench. And I think the Bills are all set at tackle, but this is a big butt, and because we're talking about offensive linemen, they're all big butts. <laughs> we have a situation similar to what I mentioned with Stefan Diggs, where if you start projecting forward injuries that could really tank this season, Deion Dawkins or Spencer Brown going down for a long period of time could be borderline catastrophic because last year what the Bills did was they just brought Williams in from guard, put him at tackle, and then it was either Botker or Ford that came in and played guard, and the offensive line was at least stabilized. Well, okay, so Williams would go into right tackle. Brown would go into left tackle. You could get through a game or a couple games like that. Right now, their third tackle on the roster is Tommy Doyle. Now, we haven't seen Tommy Doyle play tackle outside of preseason last year where it was ugly. And then one snap in the Jets game where Spencer Brown, I believe, or was it Deion Dawkins got taken? I think it was Deion Dawkins' helmet fell off. And he came out of the game for like one play. And look, I'm, I'm not the smartest guy in the room. I never think I'm the smartest person in the world, but I remember thinking, man, McDermott should burn a timeout here. So Dawkins can go back in the game. And then Shaq Lawson just blew by Tommy Doyle and crushed Josh Allen. It was like, oh my God, that killed our drive. And luckily it didn't kill our quarterback. Tommy Doyle did not look like a guy that was ready to take on an expanded role. Now to the bills credit as the season rolled on, they put Tommy Doyle in that in that um, heavy tight end package where he got on the field a lot, even caught a touchdown pass in a playoff game. If, big if, Tommy Doyle can get to a point where you feel comfortable with him as your third tackle, then my God, Luca, the Bills could save so much money by having Spencer Brown cost-controlled, Tommy Doyle cost-controlled, and you have two tackles on your roster outside of Deion Dawkins you feel good about. The problem is I don't see a scenario where Brandon Bean is going to allow himself to go into a season counting on Tommy Doyle to be the third tackle. So I think he's going to want to have options there. He's not going to let a tackle injury tank the season, and it could. That's how important that position is. It could tank a season for a roster that's expected to compete for a Super Bowl. So my question to you is, do you expect the Bills to address tackle in the draft? If you do, do you expect them to address it early? And I will start leading you with my answer of, 
I think the Bills are probably going to lean more to the veteran tackle market, maybe post-June 1st cut. Um, and I don't expect them to draft a rookie and expect him to be the third tackle because that's similar to what you're getting from Tommy Doyle, an unknown lotto ticket. So my expectation is they probably won't. But what do you think about the tackle situation and the Bills approach in the draft? I do not believe it will be a high pick that they address this situation with. But to not acknowledge that we need to make sure we're comfortable or at least more comfortable with that situation going into the preseason and then the season um, while you experienced what you did the previous year right in the middle of it, you know, having things of like exactly what you described in the Jets game or, you know, the entire Jags game, which I guess I keep bringing up this podcast for whatever reason that that scar is just picked at this moment in time or scab. Eh, I keep messing up my words tonight. Um, I, I, I do think they need to acknowledge it. I don't expect them to use a high draft pick for it. I, you know, I've been going back and forth on this and whether it's them address addressing tackle specifically or just uh, addressing line depth in general, maybe someone that they look at that could be more impactful or helpful interior out the gate, but then could maybe mold into a tackle. And I'll get into why I bring that point in uh, here with a name um, that I have kind of looked at that may not be discussed everywhere. Um, but getting back to it, I, that could be something they look at maybe round three, early day three, you know, so you're looking at late day two, early day three, however they want to do it. Cause you, you know, you look at the success of Spencer Brown, Spencer Brown was not supposed to be that guy. He wasn't supposed to come in and make the impact that he did as early as he did. He was supposed to be a guy to sit there and then eventually slowly integrate into the line maybe in years to come and become a tackle that he was. Well, we just lucked out. We went into the year thinking that our tackle position was sitting okay with Daryl Williams, and yet we had our right tackle sitting there at Spencer Brown. Thank God for that. They may look at that and go, Let's take a guy, depending on how the draft works out, depending on who's sitting there, of course, because when you're talking late day two, early day three, there's a lot that could change that, you know, maybe there's value elsewhere. Maybe there is no value elsewhere and you are looking at offensive line in general and you just throw a dart out there, you know, when it comes to the draft and just see if you can bring in another guy that you're not holding immediate needs for, but if push comes to shove and you need him to get a couple snaps in, maybe he can help you out. And then if you luck out and you find another Spencer Brown, how awesome would that be? But um, yeah, I think your point with the veteran market being where they may be eyeing as the way to address it, it's probably accurate. I think the post June 1st, yeah, that's, that's where they're going to go most likely. It just wouldn't surprise me if maybe they address it in the draft, but at the same time, it wouldn't surprise me if they don't. It, I think this draft this year is very interesting as we've been going through this and surprises or lack thereof is kind of a nice thing. It's kind of where the team is already comfortable. Now, how can we just add a couple pieces here and there to just bring it up another notch? 
So the thing about picking 25th is we are doing a lot of projecting. And by us saying they're not going to take a tackle in the first round or anything like that, that's projecting that Evan Neal, Charles Cross, Akima Kwanu, they're all off the board. Obviously, if any of those guys fall down to 25 and the Bills had them rated as a top five, top 10 player, Brandon Bean would probably make that pick and just say, okay, well, Spencer Brown, as good as you were last year, you're going to go back to being our swing tackle. And we just got an elite blue chip prospect. You know, a guy that maybe could get consideration for them in the first round, Trevor Penning, Spencer Brown's teammate um, from college, a guy that you could look at as almost like Spencer Brown on steroids. When you talk about same athleticism, but even better technique coming out of college, you know, that could solve the swing tackle thing by kicking Spencer Brown back to swing tackle. But I don't anticipate the Bills looking to do that. I, I think that they're happy with what they got out of Spencer Brown, and he's going to be their right tackle of the future. And the fact that he can play left tackle in a pinch does make it a little bit easier to um, figure out who's going to play tackle if Deion Dawkins goes down because you can kick Brown over to the left side and then whoever comes into right side. And it is worth mentioning that Roger Saffold started his career as a tackle. Maybe he has some of that flexibility to get you out of a game there. And with the Bills bringing back Ryan Bates, he's a guy that can play tackle too. I think we'd all agree that as nice as it was to to have Spencer Brown and Daryl Williams have the flexibility to get us out of a game, it would be nice if a tackle injury happened to be more back in the 2019 version of Ty Seke where, okay, Nseke's going to go wherever the injury is, everybody else stays put. Uh, you, you get kind of tired of seeing four changes happen to compensate for one injury, but that's how important tackle is. Not many guys can play that position at a high level in the NFL, so when an injury happens, teams have to scramble. I do think the Bills are going to look at a veteran there. One name I'll tell you uh, to keep an eye on later in the draft is Nicholas Petit-Freer. He's a guy that's been mentioned as already having a top 30 visit with the Bills. They have interviewed him. Just a name to keep on your radar. I don't know if that's a thing that they'd pull on day one or day two, but just a name to keep out there. I, I do echo a lot of what Lucas said about maybe a guard that has tackle background. Remember, Cody Ford came out. He was a tackle at Oklahoma, but they projected him better to being a guard. And that happens a lot with a lot of these guards. Like Tyler Smith is projected to go in the first round. And he played a lot of tackle in college, but he's projected to be a guard in the NFL. And that could be a situation where you get a guy who has tackle experience in college. You look at him more as an interior player, but he could get you out of a game at tackle. Maybe that's the route they go. Luke, I think we've hit tackle pretty well here. Let's move on to guard because I think that is, or more so just the interior offensive line as a whole. I think that's probably where the majority of the need comes on the offensive line for this team. Now that need was lessened a couple days ago with Ryan Bates coming back and then Ike Botker also resigning a one-year deal. It's important to remember on Botker though, he had that Achilles injury happened late in the year. So he's almost definitely going to start the season on the pup list. I don't think he's somebody you can count on to really help you much early in the year. And even at his best, he's not really, he's a baseline average backup level player, maybe a decent starter, but I don't think he's somebody you really want to count on that moves the meter, especially coming off that Achilles rupture. So right now at left guard, the well, we don't know who's going to be left guard because Bates was left guard last year. Saffold calls himself a left guard. One of them is going to be playing left guard. The other one is going to be the other one. So Roger Saffold, Ryan Bates, both starting guards as we think right now. And then Mitch Morse in the middle. We have Greg Mance 
and Cody Ford at interior backup along with Ike Botker. And Mitch Morris got a contract extension this offseason. Ryan Bates signed a four-year deal. They're both going to be here for the long haul. Cody Ford and Roger Saffold and Greg Manns are going into the last years of their deal because Saffold and Manns only signed a one-year deal. So, Luca, looking at the interior offensive line situation, I feel comfortable with who the Bills would be rolling out there on opening day with Saffold and Bates at guard, Morse at center. Um, obviously, if injuries happen, I think you're okay with a Bakker or a Ford. I don't think there's an immediate need to get anything done. Where I think the need comes in is what happens if Mitch Morse gets another concussion? What happens if Roger Saffold is a one and done player and then you have another hole at left guard? Do you want to go ahead and start filling that pipeline? Or like you mentioned, what happens if Ryan Bates really is just a backup player that had a really strong five game stretch down the line? So what do you put on your need meter? Is this a early round pick, a mid round pick? Is guard even worth an early round pick, even if it was a need? To me, three days ago, this looked like a much different situation when it looked like Ryan Bates was going to Chicago and we we're potentially looking at Cody Ford being our penciled in starter. I was about ready to say this is probably a position we need to address early, as early as the first round. Right now, I'm backing off of that. Where do you think guard, particularly? You could even say center, but interior offensive line guard, where does it slot in on your needs list? I'm going to give you an answer that's even more specific. This is my round four pick. This is wow. this is like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to call my shot on this one. This is the one that you start day three. Day three of the draft is not a sexy day. It starts in the middle of the early afternoon. You know, you're just, it, I actually forget it's always on when it starts. <laughs> I, I will be honest, like day three is not the day of the draft that I honestly care. And then all of a sudden it's like you open up your phone to the ESPN app and the draft, you know, trackers on. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the third day of the draft started. You always forget it. But uh, I'm going to call my shot. This is this is the fourth round pick that you make here. And uh, I'm going to roll this right into the the thing I had kind of mentioned when we were on the tackle subject. But it's where you kind of take a guy like a Bernard Raymond. Um, Bernard Raymond is a intriguing prospect to me. So I came across this name. Um, I honestly cannot remember where it was on at some website and what popped to me. And it honestly, it was a ridiculous thing was a two year offensive line converted from wide receiver tight end. And I'm like, okay, well, I need to know more about this individual because what made him switch to offensive line and become a tackle that's actually draft worthy after two years ago being a tight end slash wide receiver. Right. Well, it's it, it fascinating, fascinating to me. Well, he's, you know, six foot six, 300, 300 pounds. He had a 30 bre- bench at the combine. I mean, he actually, like, you looked at him, if you look at him that and you didn't know that he was a converted wide receiver tight end, you're like, yeah, he's an offensive line prospect. He's actually listed on a lot of sites as a tackle. As you mentioned, though, you know, a lot of guys that are tackles in college, which, by the way, are generally because they're the biggest, strongest of the offensive linemen that that college has right you just put the biggest dude out at tackle because or most athletic as well depending on what you're doing in college because that's the hardest position to do well you're no longer in college now you're now you're in the nfl and they are not going to be able to like in bernard's case handle the speed you know Things like that. But the intriguing part about the, a guy like this, and I'm going to go into it because I'm going to give this guy so many props because he's kind of like my little dark horse. I would love to hear his name called for the Bills just for my own sake is 
he had all these positives about how very athletic sticks to uh, defenders in the run game is a very smart player when it comes to reading stunt blitzes as well as holding up you know power rushes things like that like you're like where are his weaknesses like why why would he be looked at as still a project other than the fact that he's only had two years well it turns out that he's you know has to work on his footwork a little bit his hips get rotated too early things like that so that you know what that tells you is in no way can he play tackle in the nfl a speed rusher would kill this guy he he would ha- never have a chance you would see <laughs> you, you would if we had an injury to tackle you're not putting him out there that just will you're gonna get josh allen killed but if you're at round four round five i'll i'll, I'll lean back to round five on it you know he that's a guy that you bring in and you're like, well, he has tackle experience technically, but then also every one of those positives I talked about, you look at and you go, you know, that seems like you'd be pretty comfortable with that in on your interior line. Would you not, would you not like a guard that actually knows how to read stunts very well, can handle a power rush, can stick to a defender and just hold up with his man in order to allow whatever else need to happen. I mean, that sounds like a guy that to be frank, I would rather have him on my roster, a person with that description, than a Cody Ford. I'd cut my losses with Cody Ford. We've seen a lot of issues with him. I don't think his ceiling is going anywhere. I don't think that Cody Ford is a guy that is long for this team. So why not just replace him with this guy? Just try something else out that seems to be of similar make in a way, right? So that's kind of where I was going with that. I just wanted to get, you know, almost be the first name out there going, yeah, Bernard Raymond, that's a guy, you know, that's an intriguing son of a bitch because wide receiver to offensive line is a hell of a transition, but then to be actually good at things that you look at an interior lineman and go, you should probably be good at those things that, that, uh, you sparked my interest there. That's, that's what, that's what does it with that. I like the name and I love the backstory. I think the tricky part about picking offensive linemen for the Bills right now is they have a new offensive coordinator in Ken Dorsey and they have a new offensive line coach in Aaron Cromer. So we really don't know for a fact what they're going to prioritize when it comes to their offensive line. Are they looking for more power blockers, looking for more zone blockers? But if you follow the trail of breadcrumbs, they brought back Ryan Bates, elite athlete for the position. They brought in Roger Saffold, very good athlete for the position. Um, Spencer Brown is going to be their right tackle. Very good athlete for the position, elite athlete for, for the position, really. And they moved on from Daryl Williams, who by the end of last year was their least athletic offensive lineman. That leads me to believe that they are going away from the power base offensive line. They also cut John Feliciano, who fits into that power offensive line build. So I think they're looking for more athletic guys that can fit into more of a zone blocking scheme. And for me, look, if if they were going to take somebody in the first round, that's why I was going to lean Zion Johnson over Kenyon Green because Johnson is just a tremendous athlete. And honestly, if the wide receiver board falls a certain way and the cornerback board falls a certain way and there's just not enough names there to like and Johnson is sitting there at 25, I could talk myself into it. Why not find another great player for your offensive line? I think he's a game changer on the offensive line. And I, 
I don't know if he plays right off the bat. I mean, he's better than Ryan Bates. He, Ryan, we need to stop overrating Ryan Bates. Ryan Bates is an exciting player. Zion Johnson is a very, very, very good prospect. And I would not hate that pick at 25, even with Bates in house. But to me, looking more at the athletic type offensive lineman, um, Dylan Parham down the line is a very good athlete. Got a nine out of 10 on his relative athletic score. Um, Darian Kennard, another really good athlete that also has that tech, uh, tackle flexibility we talked about earlier. Um, Sean Ryan, a little bit down the board, good athlete, um, RAS score of 8.26 at tackle. But when you move him into guard, his RAS moved up to 9.49. So really good athlete for guard also has tackle flexibility, just some names to kick around. I do think we're going to see the bills take a swing on interior offensive line. I would say I wouldn't even be surprised if it happened before the fourth round, maybe on day two. I could also see a situation, Luca, similar to the draft where they got Ed Oliver, Cody Ford, Devin Singletary, and then trade up for Dawson Knox. This is a team that's very heavy in picks on day three, and this is a roster that doesn't really have a lot of room for rookies. So I could see a situation where they make their first three picks. It gets near the end of day three. Somebody's falling that they like, maybe an interior offensive lineman, and they decide to package two or three of their day three picks together to go ensure they get a player that they feel like can be a contributor on this football team. So I think the Bills are probably going to look for quality over quantity in this draft, maybe because of the fact that they they got sniped last year with guys like Rashad Wild Goose and Jack Anderson getting taken off their practice squad along with Jake Fromm, um, who was from the draft before, got taken off by the Giants. I could see Brandon Bean just saying, hey, we're not going to have eight guys make this roster. Let's just make sure we we get guys we like. If we have to trade up in a couple of rounds to make sure we get four or five guys we're really good about, we feel really good about, let's just do it. So I, I think that's probably the path they go with guard. Prior to Bates and Bakker signing, I was getting scared thinking this is going to have to be the pick in the first round because they can't put themselves in a situation where Cody Ford is going to see meaningful playing time. But now that they brought Bates back, they certainly don't have to do that. I wouldn't anticipate that unless, you know, Zion Johnson falls and you're in a situation where, you know, the wide receivers and corners are off the board. But more so, I'm with you. Third, fourth round, look for an athlete, maybe a guy that can have that bonus of playing tackle, but more so that swing interior player that can be first off the bench if an injury happens and is ready to take over in 2023 after Saffold leaves. All right, well, we have looked at offensive line, offensive skill position players, quarterbacks. We have taken a deep dive into the draft, and we are about two hours and 15 minutes into this show, Luca. So is there anything else you would like to say about the draft, about offensive positions, anything else you'd like to see the Bills do in the draft that we didn't mention tonight when it comes to offense? I mean, I would love to see uh, the man I just mentioned fall back to them because this is where me being very busy recently, I wasn't able to update my notes from a while ago. Apparently, Bernard Raymond has actually uh, found his way up the boards here. <laughs> Where's he projected to go now? Yeah, I'm seeing him like early second. Okay. I'm like, oh, come on, man. When I wrote his stuff in January, I was like, yeah, they're going to see this wide receiver to offensive lineman and say project, right? Damn. My little hidden secret's gotten out, apparently. No, if you're um, if you're an athlete like that, these NFL coaches think, man, <laughs> the NFL coaches have like zero respect for college coaches. They're like, just give us the traits. We can coach you up better than those college coaches did. 
No, but yeah, I think I think we did a good job there, and uh, you know, a little fun. Remember when you said ninety minutes or so? Yeah, we're two two hours fifteen minutes in, and uh, I'm I'm ready to go with the uh, the old fun big three game. Let's do this. All right, before we do that, let's give another shout out to Dylan on Twitter. I did ask the question earlier on Bills Chat Pod at on Twitter at Bills Chat Pod. If the Bills take an offensive player in the first round, my favorite idea is blank, and Dylan responded with. Brees Hall or Jamison Williams both give the offense something it already doesn't have. Hard to argue with that, Dylan. They need a game breaker. Both of those guys would represent that. Um, I'm not as high on Brees Hall as some others, but I definitely see the appeal. And I think there is a pretty decent, uh, there's a decent chance he winds up with the Bills. I think he's exactly the flavor of running back that they are into. So next week on this show, we will be talking about defense, the defensive depth chart will be a deep dive on defense, similar to how we did on offense tonight. But now Luca, it's time to turn back the clock. Look at that wonderful 17 year period of the bills playoff drought and do a big three. And tonight the theme of the big three is of course, NFL draft related, a draft do over what pick move, whatever you want to call it. The bills made during the drought would you like a do-over on? And there is one caveat we want to add here. We know Tom Brady was taken in the sixth round of the 2000 draft. And obviously we'd all would love to have the bills be the team that got him in the sixth round, but that's no fun, right? We want these to be realistic topics of conversation at the time. So let's not say, oh, well, instead of taking whoever the bills took in 2000, we should have taken Tom Brady in the first round. That wasn't realistic. We're not even going to allow Tom Brady to play in this game. He's played in enough games. He's off the board. We want realistic moves the Bills could have considered at the time that would have been a better option than what they did with the obvious knowledge that hindsight is 2020. And we could all be geniuses, Luca, if we drafted with hindsight. But you know how this goes it's a snake draft. You either pick first or second and third. And the way we determine who picks first is we ask a trivia question, we got to see if the other one can get it right. All right, I it's my turn to ask the question, and my question is also going to be draft-related. I love it. All right. You ready? Oh, I'm ready. Let's do it. We just talked about offensive linemen. It's possible that the Bills spend a first-round pick on an offensive lineman. That would be pretty monumental because they haven't spent a first-round pick on an offensive lineman in quite some time. Luca, do you remember the last player the Bills spent a first round pick on for offensive line? Oh my goodness. Is that the question? Mm-hmm. Oh, geez. Yeah, it's been a long time because I actually feel like they either go skill position on offense or defense in general. If I had to guess, it's going to be in the early 2000s. And if you're asking me a player, and I'm assuming you are, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with. Mike Williams. Well, unfortunately, Luca, you got the answer wrong. Mike Williams was an offensive lineman that the Bills took in the first round. But in 2000, let me get the year right. I want to say it's 2008, but let's not guess. While I'm looking this up here. Bills <laughs> took a pretty iconic player. Oh, my goodness. In 2009, he is currently... Oh the play-by-play color man for the Bills radio broadcast, Eric Wood. 
in 2009. Oh my God, how did I get that wrong? Now, I'm going to give Luca a little bit of a pass here because he wasn't the first pick that year. That was the Aaron Maben draft. Right. And that was <laughs> Eric Wood was taken with the pick that the Bills traded Jason Peters for. So I think whenever you're kind of cycling through drafts, you think of, okay, Maben, you just start going through and you think of it like that. Like, okay, the Mike Williams draft, the Sammy Watkins draft, the EJ Manuel draft, the Aaron Maben draft. It's easy to forget that Eric Wood actually did slide into the back half of that draft. But, oh my goodness. Okay. Well, I'm going to take advantage of, um, I, I think I've already took advantage of you being tired because I think if you were full mind, you would have gotten that one. But I'm going to take advantage of winning this and I'm going to go first because I think this draft do-over game has one very, very, very obvious answer. Um, And I'm going to tell you guys this, that we need to have the caveat here that we are very happy with where we are right now in 2022 with Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, and Josh Allen and a Super Bowl contending roster. And if you guys have watched the Back to the Future movies, if you alter one thing from the past, you never know what from the future it's going to change. And there's nothing from the past that's worth, in my mind, altering Josh Allen. So let's have some fun with this. Let's not really overthink it. Like, oh, if we had done this in 2005, would we still be in position to draft Josh Allen? Probably not. Who knows? But Luca, I'm going to go back to 2004. And the Bills got in on the quarterback mix in a draft that had Ben Roethlisberger, Eli Manning, and Philip Rivers, three potential Hall of Famers in one draft, amazing draft class. The Bills dipped their toe into the first round mix, but Luca, they came away with JP Lossman. Now look, you miss on a quarterback in the first round, that can happen. JP Lossman was not a good player. He had some good traits, had some good arm strength, had some good speed, had a pretty fiery competitive personality. But what the Bills did in getting J.P. Lossman was they had already spent their first round pick on Lee Evans. So to get that pick, they traded up from the second round with Dallas, gave up their second round pick, their fifth round pick, and their first round pick in 2005. And they took J.P. Lossman. The downstream effect of this was the Bills did not need a quarterback in 2005. If they had just sat out the 2004 draft, not taking a quarterback, they would have presumably gone into 2005 needing a quarterback. In 2005, guess which quarterback fell to 25 to the Green Bay Packers? (laughs) Aaron Rodgers. That one kind of stings a little bit because it's not too hard to play the if-then game of if we didn't take Lossman, then we would have had Rodgers fall under our lap. Would they have liked Rodgers? Who knows? Maybe they would have preferred Jason Campbell, who was the other quarterback that went around that time. Kind of doubt it. I think they would have liked Rodgers, but who knows? You can drive yourself crazy. So why did the Bills trade up for J.P. Lossman when they had Drew Bledsoe on their roster? Well, Drew Bledsoe had a very sizable bonus due to him in November of that year, and Tom Donahoe greatly wanted to get that bonus out of his contract And up until draft day, they could not get that done. So Tom Donahoe went into that draft thinking, I may have to cut Drew Bledsoe before this season starts because Drew Bledsoe was awful in 2003. He was great in 2002, awful in 2003. And it was very realistic that the Bills could have had to cut Drew Bledsoe after the draft. So story goes, the Bills who picked at 13 
were trying to trade up ahead of Pittsburgh, who picked two picks in front of them with Houston to pick Ben Roethlisberger. But the price the Texans wanted to not take the cornerback they got done to Robinson was too rich for Tom Donahoe. Tom Donahoe passed. I don't know what the price was. Rumor has it as they wanted a future first round pick. They could have gotten Ben Roethlisberger. Who knows? The story also goes that Houston was just determined to get done to Robinson. They weren't going to trade. There's really no clarity on that. But the Bills tried to get Roethlisberger, ended up staying put. Roethlisberger went to Steelers. And then the Bills ended up staying put and get Lee Evans, who was a very good receiver and similar to Eric Moulds. Who knows what his career would have looked like if he had any kind of stability at quarterback. Lee Evans was a lot of fun. But then the Bills, I think, panicked, got back into the first round and got J.P. Lostman, who by some accounts was considered like a borderline first round player. But there were the big three. It was Eli Manning, Ben Roethlisberger, and Phillip Rivers. Then there was a gap. And then it was J.P. Lostman. And there was a little bit of a gap. And then it was Matt Schaub. And then there was everybody else down the line. And unfortunately... They did that. They did restructure Drew Bledsoe's contract just two days after the draft on April 27th, got that contract written up. And actually at the time it, it read like, okay, this actually extends Drew Bledsoe's time in Buffalo and there's no way he's not going to be on the roster in 2005. But if you fast forward, Drew Bledsoe was cut the day after the 2004 season ended and it was the JP Lossman show in 2005. I remember watching that draft. And I didn't really have a strong opinion on Lossman because at that time the Bills picked, I want to say 13th that year. I should have this in front of me, but it was really conceivable that they were going to get either Rivers, um, Roethlisberger, or Manning where they picked, not Manning. Manning was going to go higher, but it felt like one of them could fall to them. Really, it felt like Phillip Rivers was going to fall to them if they wanted him. And it wasn't until the, the Chargers really showed a lot of interest in him from coaching him at the Senior Bowl that he shot up the draft boards. So I never really considered Lossman. It never felt like he was going to go in that range where the Bills would pick him. So for me, it was kind of cool that we got a quarterback. I talked myself into it, but man, Luca, it started a downstream effect of negative things happening to the Bills. And it was just another laughable mistake where three Hall of Fame quarterbacks go in 2004. We get the one in the first round that's not, and then potentially cost us the Hall of Fame quarterback in 2005 and Aaron Rodgers. So with that, my first pick is J.P. Lossman. Yeah, it's the obvious first pick. Great choice. Everything you said, spot on. Yeah, I mean, it. it's definitely the uh, highlight of oopsies in the draft over the drought years. Um, I actually did a fun thing, and I'll, I'll add it to yours. So going forward, by the way, I'm doing, you know, the do-over, but then also who I I would have taken if that pick didn't occur. Um, And with this one, I actually, and this is kind of going to highlight what I was doing. So like, if we did not trade, we'd be sitting there, you know, at pick, I believe 43 could have had Bob Sanders. And then the following year at our pick 20 could have had, which obviously wide receiver was maybe on our mind. Say we kept Drew Bledsoe for whatever ungodly reason. I'm not saying that is because obviously Aaron Rodgers would be there, so on and so forth. But if we say we're focused on wide receiver, Mark Clayton could have been a bill. Fun stuff like that. You know, I think very Roddy White went around there too, didn't he? Roddy White was a little bit later than that okay. too as well, late in the first round. So yeah, like it, it just the ultimate, oh shit, we fucked up. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, great pick. Um, I guess, you know, it's only fitting. I think my next pick has to uh, be the pick that was before Eric Wood. 
and uh, in that draft. And of course, I would be speaking about Aaron Maben. Um, actually, and to add to it, who I would take is Brian Arakpo. And I, it's just as simple as this. If our idea was to take a guy who had edge rushing statistics that were very, very good, taking the individual who had an okay pro day, but an explosive one year in Aaron Maben, when you had a four-year proven commodity in Brian Arakpo, who was seen at the time as a legitimate day one starter in the NFL, and Aaron Maben was looked at as, well, we're not sure because he had one year track record. I don't understand what the thought process is. My and now I apologize for not having a lot of backstory or history to any of these folks. Again, uh, my brain is very tired, a lot of travel coming up. So I wasn't able to dive in as much into the game this weekend. I do apologize, but uh, I, I look at that pick. I look at the Aaron Mabin pick. I remember being upset about it because of Brian Arakpo, not only was a great name, but he was a great player. And that was literally the guy I was praying the, the bills were taking. If, they were, in fact, looking for that guy to hold the edge and be the the edge rusher they wanted at that position, at that outside linebacker edge rush position. And boy, did they mess that one up with Aaron Maven. Maven was such a horrendous pick. I mean, look at that draft that they got. They took Eric Wood later in the draft, who was obviously a home run pick. In the second round, they got Andy Levitri and Jarris Bird. So outside of Maven, that was a really solid haul for them. What's interesting around that time, though, is that was the first draft after Marv Levy was the GM, and we really didn't know who the Bills GM was at that point in time, and it really felt like it was, you know, they they call, I, th- I believe they had Russ Brandon almost in that pseudo GM role, but it really felt like during that Maben pick that Dick Duran was the guy running the draft room, and he just supposedly fell in love with Maben. I remember Dante Whitner t- tweeted out that morning, like, hey, Bills fans, who are we going to take? I hope it's a Rackpo. And, you know, Dante Whitner was already in the crosshairs of Bills fans because they didn't like the pick from the year before. And they were, they were like, oh, you don't know anything. But I'm with you. It, just imagine if they had gotten a Rackpo to go with Wood and Levitri and Bird. What a haul that would have been. Maybe just oh. an all-time bad pick. And I'll never forget listening to WGR and Paul Hamilton was their Bills reporter at the time, and he was doing their training camp report. And Maben held out that year, and he so he didn't show up until right before their first first preseason game. So Paul Hamilton is going to practice the next week, and Maben's in pads, and he's on the phone with Howard Simon and Jeremy White, and he's like, "Guys, I'm not trying to be dramatic here, but if Maben was standing with the wide receivers, it wouldn't look weird. Like he's not <laughs> a big guy, and you know." It, it was like, okay, whatever. He's just being dramatic. And then you turn the game on. You're like, wait a minute. Is that a safety or is that our defensive end? He is a small, small guy. And he did not turn out very well. So that is a very good pick for you. I'm excited to hear who your next pick is. Yeah. So it's a kind of theme, right? So I'm like, why did we take him when we could have taken him? And this one is honestly, I honestly put this one in my own personal above the Maven mess up. Um, but I know obviously based on value, I had to take Maven first for the graphics and everything in perception that that is clearly the bigger mix up, but this one holds a close one again, as I said, in my heart. And that is in 2008 at also pick 11, we took Leotis McKelvin and instead 
there was a guy that we passed on, also known as Dominique Rogers Cromartie, who was the clear and obvious answer to corner in that draft. I I cannot tell you how much I loved a corner going into a draft that I did with Dominique Rogers Camardi. He was everything you wanted. Sub 4440. Absolute unit of a specimen when it comes to just comparative to other corners. Over six foot. Unbelievable vertical. This guy was a freak. Great in man coverage in college. Yes, he played for a smaller college, but again, in college, it's just athlete on athlete, and he just dominated in the lower levels. You just you had a feeling that as long as you just kind of directed him, molded him, kind of what we talked about with Christian Watson back, you just kind of do the little things to bring him up to speed to NFL and just let him run, right? And obviously, as we saw with him being a Cardinal, which, of course, also wasn't too upset with, um, you know, he was a clear and concise, just dominant corner. Well, instead, we took Leotis McKelvin. Good corner. Don't get me wrong. But this is just more about the Leotis McKelvin was always that guy that turned out to be, you know, never something that you drafted him with the intention of. He he was a good talent, not a great talent. He just he was never that dominant number one guy. And unfortunately, he just fell short and everything with his biggest highlight being the unfortunate Monday night season opener. Just messing that game up. So it's almost fitting for him and his career as a bill. And just to me, I need to take that one. That has to be mine. I need it to be noteworthy because to take Leotis McKelvin while DRC is on the board is just criminal. Absolutely criminal. You know, it's interesting because when you think about draft busts and mistakes, McKelvin never really comes up in that conversation because like you mentioned, he was a solid player. He was never in the conversation like a Nate Clements or an Antoine Winfield where it's like, is this guy going to make the Pro Bowl? He was never considered one of the better cornerbacks in the league, but he was always a solid starter. So yeah, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. Like, okay, that was a pick they made. He was okay. He was here for a while. That, That wasn't a terrible pick, but you're right. There were some names after him. And what's funny about that draft is in the second round, they traded up and got James Hardy at wide receiver and Deshaun Jackson went a few picks uh, before that or a few picks after that, excuse me. And that was just one of those situations where at the time I'm not going to pretend like I wanted Deshaun Jackson. I actually, the guy I wanted was Devin Thomas who went to Washington and he ended up doing nothing in his career. So, um, you know, it's interesting kind of look back and see like the guys you loved at the time that didn't end up doing anything. But Deshaun Jackson went and then Calais Campbell went a couple picks later and the Bills are and Lima Swede was another guy that I liked that the Bills didn't take and he didn't you know do anything in his career. I, I don't mean to step in real quick, but you know what's funny is Deshaun Jackson. You remember how I mentioned earlier that Pac-12 or at the time Pac-10 was where I lived mm-hmm. and breathed. Deshaun Jackson was the one guy that I that year I was like. I just don't want him on a team we have to play against either the Bills or Cardinals. I'm like, please, for the love of God, I had to deal with. He single-handedly won a game for Cal against Mm -hmm. Arizona State that the only game that gives me more nightmares to this date is when Reggie Bush single-handedly came (laughs) through and just ran all over us. So Deshaun Jackson was a guy in my mind. I was like, this guy is, I knew, you just, you knew it. If you watched him, you knew it. You're like, this guy is unbelievable but again he played at cal pac 10 never on the national television stage because i don't think cal was honestly that 
good other than having a guy like him, you know, and then they had Marshawn Lynch as well the year before or two years before. When did we take him? 2007. So yeah, yeah. Ra- Raiders, they were on a team together at one point and it was like, yeah, it was a fun team to watch, but they were never dominant. So they were never on the national stage. So yeah, I remember when the bills took James Hardy, I was like, what the hell are you doing? They were you obsessed with size. They they thought they, <laughs> thought they needed a big receiver and that they just went out and got the biggest guy. Unbelievable. It blew, it was it's funny because it's two picks back to back. I'm glad you brought it up. Back to back where you have DRC instead you take Leotis McKelvin. Less speed, not as good athletically. Then you have James Hardy instead of Deshaun Jackson. Boy, did their scouting department really fuck up that year. <laughs> yeah. It's a wonder why uh, they ended up going out and getting Buddy Nix to be their GM. And it's like, if Buddy Nix is your savior, good luck. All right. Well, that's a good pick for you. I'm going to go to, for my second pick, 2010. In the first round, the Bills took CJ Spiller. Had a nice career with the Bills. Really strong in 2012. Probably wouldn't have been my pick at the time. But Luca, that's not the do-over I want in that draft. My do-over is at the top of the second round, pick 41. The Bills take nose tackle Terrell Troop. And the reason why the Bills took Terrell Troop is this was Chan Gailey's first year as head coach. He brought in a 3-4 defense, and the Bills had zero personnel on the roster ready to play 3-4. So they had Chris Kelsey going to play outside linebacker. That was an adventure. Um, But they needed a nose tackle, and by God, they took Terrell Troop, which is a little disappointing because they took Terrell Troop at pick 41. At pick 42, a guy that you would hope that the Buffalo Bills would be familiar with because he grew up in their city, the New England Patriots took a guy named Rob Gronkowski, tight end out of Arizona. And this is one that was not only second-guessed with the hindsight being 2020, this is one Bills fans were screaming about at on draft day because Rob Gronkowski by all accounts was a first round talent who I believe just had some injury issues going into the draft back issues. Yeah. yeah. Back Back issues. issues. And they were concerned he might be a one contract player, but for a team, like just imagine as fun as that Chan Gailey offense was, if, if Gronk was in the slot for those Fitzpatrick offenses with, with CJ Spiller in the backfield, I mean, you just never know what it would be. And maybe Gronk would be just one of those guys that if he came here and didn't get with Tom Brady, he just would have been like another good tight end that fizzled out and maybe had like a Charles Clay career. Who knows? The best thing for him obviously was going to New England, but a guy that grew up in your city has a hall of fame, legendary career, and he's right there for you to take him, And you don't because you take Terrell troop. That one just painful, painful. That's a great pick. I had very, very good pick. Terrell Troop. It's a name that I always giggle at when I hear it. <laughs> and it's it's just because it's you're not Rob Gronkowski. You're forever linked to that, unfortunately, for Terrell Troop. I would love to know what he's doing these days because he's just doing whatever not Rob Gronkowski is doing. Well, what's interesting uh, is Rob Gronkowski, the back issues that had made him fall in the draft, Terrell Troop ended up getting a bad back his first year and he was out of the league in yeah. three or four years. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I've, so U of a, um, I'll say it nice and politely here for the listening audience. I have a nice distaste for, but yeah, <laughs> Rob Gronkowski was single-handedly the biggest weapon they had. He was, you know, it was clear 
clear cut, as you mentioned, first round talent, just always had back problems and would always get his back hurt. I think he missed one of the territorial cup games, thank God. And then ASU just pounded them because of it. Um, And that was his one concern, as you mentioned. But yeah, that's a great pick. I'm, I'm excited to hear your third one. Okay, so my third one is going to be kind of a head scratcher for folks because the player that I want to do over on is a fantastic player and he's probably going to wind up in the Hall of Fame. Unfortunately, he's not going to wind up in the Hall of Fame for what he did in Buffalo. In 2007, in the offseason, the Bills traded Willis McGahee to the Baltimore Ravens and they had a glaring hole at running back. In fact, the only running back they had on their roster was some undrafted free agent that nobody's ever heard of named Fred Jackson. He's probably not going to amount to anything. So you looked at the 2007 draft and there were just some names in that draft that you, you just knew were blue chippers, Calvin Johnson, Joe Thomas, Adrian Peterson, Patrick Willis, four players that just every scout magazine you read was just like, this guy's a home run. They're not going to miss there's, there's no way these guys fail, and the Bills desperately in that draft needed a running back, they needed a, um, they needed a linebacker, and they needed a cornerback badly in that draft, those three positions. So Calvin Johnson was never going to get to them. So leading up to that draft, it was, okay, as long as Adrian Peterson or Patrick Willis fall to the Bills, they're going to be in good shape. Well, Adrian Peterson goes off the board at seven to the Minnesota Vikings. The Bills are sitting at 12. At 11, the San Francisco 49ers take Patrick Willis. So the Bills had struck out on the two blue chippers at the positions they needed. So the Bills go up at pick 12, and they still take a running back. And they take Marshawn Lynch out of California. And at the time, it was like, okay, he was kind of talked about as like a, you know, a middle end of first round. Like it wasn't considered a reach, but it really felt like the Bills knew they had lost McGahee. They had to have a running back and they were just determined to come out of this draft with a running back. So because they lost out on Adrian Peterson, they just pulled the next name off the board. And obviously hindsight's 2020. That's the, that is the exercise we're doing here, right? But if they had just gone with Fred Jackson, two picks after Mar- Marshawn Lynch got picked, the New York Jets selected a cornerback by the name of Darrell Revis, who was linked to the, to the Bills as a fallback plan if they didn't get Patrick Willis or Adrian Peterson. And instead, Darrell Rebus gets two blanket Bills receivers for the next five years in New York before he goes on to play in Tampa Bay and also blanket Bills receivers before he goes back to the Jets where he also gets the blanket Bills receivers. Now, let's be honest. If you would have drafted Darrell Rebus in 2007, it would have been a fantastic pick. He would have been here for five years and he would have left because he was all about the money and the bills were not a fan of paying players at that point in time. He would have been a one contract player. He'd have been gone and it could have been like Jason Peters where he was gone even before that contract was up. So it could have gotten really ugly. I could see that. But at the time, a running back who, when he was in Buffalo, even was not even really as good as the undrafted guy you had. Fred Jackson was a better bill than Marshawn Lynch was. Marshawn Lynch was a fantastic running back and a better overall player. What he did in Seattle was phenomenal. You could have had Darrell Rebus. You took Marshawn Lynch. I just, I would have rather seen Rebus on this team. So I hate to throw any shade at Lynch, but give me Rebus, give me the cornerback, but they took Lynch. So that's my third pick. That's a great pick. 
It's a very, very good pick. I, I like I like your little reasoning behind it, though. And, and uh, Darrell Rivas, I, I do think you're spot on. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. Darrell Rivas would not be long for Buffalo if he was here. I, I think the Jason Peters uh, analogy is spot on. I think he he would have been, oh, this place isn't paying me. As soon as you're able to ship me out of here where someone's going to pay me. But if you could have at least had him so that he wasn't then killing you, that would have been nice. Um, yeah, great pick. I, I think your draft board is going to be much more solid than mine, but I think that's more because I'm just having more fun with mine, <laughs> just with own personal things. But, uh, you know, and this is where I've, I'm leading into my third pick here. And, you know, there's the obvious value of someone like, say, uh, a loaded 2011 draft and we take Marcel Darius, you know, things like that. But uh, I'm going to I'm going to have a little fun with this one. And there's going to be a little like depth reasoning on this. And uh, it's going into the 06 draft and it does not involve any player, both that I would have taken there or that we did take that is relevant at all. It's just kind of fun. And it's more fun because then I get to evaluate, say, like the 2006 roster and go, why did we do what we did? And I'm going with. The third round pick, Ashton Yabodi. One, just wanted to say his name. <laughs> Two, we take a corner in Ashton Yabodi in the third round, which is still a round where you're taking a guy that you want to be somewhat relevant. And yet our tight ends were sitting there as eh, Kevin Everett, maybe he'll work, so on and so forth, because I, I believe we took him uh, the year before, right? He was 2005, was yeah. Yeah, it was 2005 because it was him right after Roscoe Parrish. And there was a nice promising prospect that was then taken in the third round of 2006, just two picks later, in Leonard Pope. That uh, And the funny part is, and I'm just realizing, I just chose two different Bills picks that then I would have taken the Cardinals pick. Mm-hmm. That's I, That was not intentional. I just want to point that out. But Kind of like Rondell Moore from last year. <laughs> Shout out to me. But uh, um, yeah, I, I bring this up because if you remember the roster and remember who was on that team, we had a Nate Clements, we had Jabari Greer, we had Terrence McGee. So what are we doing in taking Ashton Yabodi, who has did not become anything, when our tight ends were Kevin Everett, Robert Royal, Matt Murphy? I mean, just absolute nobodies when he could have just if you wanted to make JP Lossman work, if you wanted to try to add something different to the offense at that point in time, why not just throw it, you know, Hey, let's go get a mammoth of a human in Leonard Pope. That's a, that's a fun one to me. That's, that's a pick that I look at that. I'm just trying to have a lot of fun with and be like, not, Hey, we missed out on a, you know, all pro guy, but what could you have done to make this offense better? And the one thing I look at with that 2006 roster and go, man, we could really use a tight end. We could have really used something. You had Willis McGahee still. You had Lee Evans, Roscoe Parrish, Peerless Price, Josh Reed. You had your receivers decent enough. Your defense was decent. We talked about the corners, or I talked about the corners. The one thing that maybe you could have definitely improved is tight end, and yet you took Ashton Yabodi. Just got to say his name one more time for it. Luca, 2006 was the least fun I've had on draft day in my entire Bill's life. I hate that draft for many, many reasons. And I was so miserable that day. I was the classic Bills fan 
that like when they took Roscoe Parrish, I would watch his highlights and I'd be like, oh man, this guy's going to work. Or they took Kevin Everett. I'm like, hey, this guy's pretty cool. Or they trade up for JP Lossman. I kind of talked myself into it. I studied the 2006 draft and it was pretty obvious going into it that the, the Bills needed a safety. So you get, let's let's put the context in here that 2006, um, 2005, the Bills fired Mike Malarkey. They hired Marv Levy as head coach. They actually, let me walk that back. They hired Marv Levy as general manager. Mike Malarkey resigned because he was afraid that Marv Levy was actually angling to be the head coach, which Marv Levy really didn't shoot down those rumors. And then Marv Levy went out and hired Dick Duran to be his head coach. This Mm. to me was the first moment that I realized they don't have any clue what they're doing. Because up until 2005, it was like, okay, well, they hired Mike Malarkey. It didn't really work out, but we had a couple of fun years of blood. So, okay, they drafted Lossman. It's not looking great. Maybe they can turn it around. But, hey, teams miss on first-round quarterbacks. We can survive from this. And then they fired Donahoe, who at the time I thought Donahoe was actually a pretty good GM. He just happened to miss on Bledsoe and Lossman. It's hard to miss on two quarterbacks and survive it. And Donahoe wasn't just the GM. He was the team president. And then... Ralph Wilson fired Donahoe, made himself the team president, hired Marv Levy as general manager, and then Marv Levy hired Dick Duran. And that was the moment I realized this team is in a world of hurt. And that was like, I don't want to say I got detached from the team, but you know how you go into every season with a little bit of hope and you're just like, that was the first time I really struggled to find any hope because I mean, Marv Levy was making some just wild moves. You mentioned Robert Royal and why they wouldn't address tight end. Well, the reason why they wouldn't address tight end is because Marv Levy went out in free agency and paid mega bucks for the backup tight end on Washington who had never done anything. Robert Royal. (laughs) Marv Levy gave Josh Reed a contract extension at the time where everybody thought Josh Reed didn't even belong in the NFL. He went out and signed Peerless Price, not the 2002 um Pro Bowl level peerless price, who was a game breaker, but a washed up slow version of peerless price to be the wide receiver. Uh, JP Lossman at this point had been in the league for two years, didn't play much in 2004. 2005 was up and down, but really he'd gotten benched for Kelly Holcomb. And I'm not saying you would have wanted to bail on him just yet because only one year under his belt, but it was, it was at least a conversation of, is it time to look for a different quarterback? And then one last thing about 2006 is this was the first year that when they asked Marv Levy about the plan for the offseason, he said, our salary cap plan is we don't want to get too into the weeds with this salary cap thing. So we're just going to spend cash to the cap, which essentially means we're not going to go over, we're not going to not only go over the salary cap, like you see the bills doing where they push money into the future. Now it was more like if we spend cash, we're going to count it onto the cap. So it was just like, okay, you're not going to spend any money. Essentially what you're saying. Um, it was a mess. So we get there on draft day. Michael Huff was considered this elite safety prospect and was a perfect fit for the cover two defense. Dick Duran wanted to run this team did not have any safeties at all. And, Unfortunately, Michael Huff went off the board at pick seven and the bills run up there at pick eight and pick Dante Whitner. And I'm telling you at the time, it was like Dante Whitner was a guy that was projected to go in the first round, like pick 25 through 30. It was a curveball, And you're like, wait, 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 Dante Whitner. Like we, we could have gotten Haloti Nada. That was the name that a bunch of bills fans wanted was Haloti Nada. 
Um, mm -hmm. Broderick Buntley, the guy that ended up going to Philadelphia, maybe was a better fit for um, the Dick Duran scheme. Um, but anyway, they they reached on Whitner. So you're already in a bad mood. Like, what are they doing? So you're just kind of sitting there. The first round is going by and you look up and it's pick 26. And wait a minute, the Bills are back on the clock. They've traded back into the first round. Okay, they're going to redeem themselves. Who are they going to get? I really can't think of like who's worth trading up for here. And they read off the name John McCargo. Luca, I studied this draft top to bottom. I was all in because I went into this draft thinking the Bills probably need to pull like five starters out of this draft class to have a shot to compete. I had no idea who John McCargo was. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. He played at North Carolina State. So Mario Williams, the first pick in this draft, was at North Carolina State. Manny Lawson was also a first round pick. He was the other defensive end at North Carolina State. So you're telling me North Carolina State has three defensive linemen going in the first round? That doesn't sound right. And Mel Kuyper just crushed you. He's like, do you trade up for John McCargo, who maybe belongs in the third or fourth round as a developmental player? So by the time they got to Ashton Yabodi, Yabodi actually was projected to be a first round pick. He was that guy that on the on the screen, like of Kuyper's falling players, falling, falling, falling. Yabodi was on the screen and it was like, oh my God, we got great value. Same in the fourth round with Coe Simpson, another guy that a lot of mocks had going in the first round that fell to the fourth round. And it was just such a weird draft where it felt like Yabodi was actually good value at the time. As you mentioned, hindsight being 2020, he never even saw the field for the for the Bills, he was horrendous. Co Simpson was horrendous. And Dante Whitner was solid, not spectacular. Clearly wanted out of Buffalo, got his wish. And John McCargo never played a meaningful down for the Bills. I mean, he was a backup. The sa excuse me. The saving grace for this draft is they got Kyle Williams in the fifth round, who's going to be a wall Kyle of famer. Yep. And it's sad that the defensive tackle they traded up for in the first round couldn't hold a candle to Kyle Williams, who immediately from the very first preseason game on was ahead of John McCargo on the death chart and never looked back. But Luca, I hated the 2006 draft. I was furious. I remember watching Mike and Mike in the morning on Monday after the draft and Mike Greenberg. So at the time, Mike Greenberg and Mike Golick would, would do a live radio radio broadcast of the draft. And they had Todd McShay with them. And I remember, um, Greenberg said, Todd McShay was inventing new words to describe how much he hated what the Bills did. And I was right there with him. I hated that draft. And it's funny because on that day, Yabodi was one of the picks I felt best about. And now looking back on it, it was a disaster. Oh, it's the worst pick in that draft. And and I love saying the name. I love I I had to get it in there. I know if if when we put out the graphic later, you know, to help, you know, show what we just did, my draft's gonna look horrible. And I don't care because <laughs> Ashton Yobody's on it. And that's all that matters to me. Ashton Yobody, beautiful. But yeah, he's the worst pick in the worst draft in drought. I'm with you 100%. 2006 was just pure depression. And especially when you look back and we do this hindsight thing and you look at like the McCargo pick and right after him, you have D'Angelo Williams, Mercedes Lewis, Nick Mangold, Joseph Adai. The next four picks. Mm crazy that <laughs> it's it's a fun game to play you know of course we do it where as we, you mentioned this is not going to alter the future we love where we're at now thankfully we will not be having this kind of game for anything that's happening you know at or at least happened between say 2018 to now 
Um, but man, 2006 was pure depression. I mean, I was, I, I remember, so I was a little younger in 2006, the cargo pick happens and I was kind of with you. I was like, I'm really confused. And I still kind of remember just processing it as that moment was happening on TV of just what the hell are they doing? <laughs> and, and you just, and you were, I, I think I gave up. I think I just like, I didn't even bother watching the rest of it. So I, I remember checking to see who else we drafted because clearly they didn't know what they were doing. And it was just a disaster of a draft through and through just unbelievably horrible picks. I think the other one too, just for a fun little ASU plug, one last one, Derek Hagan, the all-time leading receiver in ASU history was in this draft. And I was like, Oh, that'd be cool. If the bills took him, you know, a receiving target, things like that. In the third round, he was still there. They took you booty. <laughs> and then Derek Hagan goes to the dolphins. Obviously he didn't turn into anything, but at the time I was just like, well, what the hell, man? Like, why can't I have fun? Why, why is this draft literally just stripped me of all my fun? It was just horrible. Yeah. There's just, to me, I said it before 2006 is when reality set in that this team was spinning its wheels. And if you look at it, they took Lossman in 2004. They gave him 2005 to develop. 2006, when they picked Whitner, the other argument you could have made is Matt Leinart and Jay Cutler were sitting there. Matt Leinart was a better prospect mm-hmm. than Jay Cutler. Obviously, looking back on it, Cutler had the better career. They could have gone quarterback if they wanted to, and they didn't. Um, not that any of those guys would have been any kind of saviors. I get that. But what's interesting to me about that is as bad as this team was, And as much as it felt like they were spinning their wheels and really had nothing to look forward to, it's 2006. The next time the Bills spin a first round pick on a quarterback is 2013. Just imagine how empty those teams felt for eight years, just waiting for a savior to come and it never came while you got names like Leotis McKelvin, James Hardy, Aaron Maven, never a quarterback. You got CJ Spiller, Marshawn Lynch, never a quarterback. Marcel Darius, we're supposed to get Cam Newton, but we win games late. We don't get Cam Newton. And it's just, I never want to go back to that. And the name we finally got when we got a quarterback was EJ Manuel, but it didn't matter because we at least tried. Like we tried to get a quarterback and that's what you need to do. And then, you know, obviously we found Josh Allen and the rest is history, but man, depressing times. So a couple of, uh, a couple of quick ones that didn't make my list that I think were at least worth considering. Um, TJ Graham in the third round. I know Buddy Nix had said that he had considered Russell Wilson, but couldn't pass up the speed of TJ Graham. He would have taken Russell Wilson in the fourth round. Thanks for that, Buddy Nix. Thanks for <laughs> for admitting that to us. That's fantastic. Um, what else pops up from that? Um, you know, Mike Williams in 2002 was a bad pick, but overall that entire draft is just not a very impressive draft. They probably could have taken, uh, Bryant McKinney who went to the Vikings who had a better career than Mike Williams, but it's not like you look back on that and think there was any kind of missed opportunity. That was just a really, really bad draft. Uh, we talked about Chris Kelsey a little bit last week in 2003 in the McGahee pick. Um, you know, there's some names there they could have taken outside of that, like Jason Witten, OCU Minora. I don't know. Uh, to me, the egregious ones are when you miss on a quarterback or when you do something where you take uh, Leotis McKelvin and a Dominique Rogers Cromartie sitting there staring you in the face, or you take a running back when there's an elite cornerback on the board, or you trade up for the wrong player. I don't know. 
there's none that I look at really beyond that. And I think you made a good point when we were talking earlier today is the closer you get to 2017 for you, I'll let you make this point, the less likely you are to want to go back and change history. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's funny because just looking back real quick, I say that and then you look at 2016, which is just an unbelievable draft and an unbelievable whiff because they had drafted for Rex Ryan and you can tell by all their picks with Shaq Loss and Reggie Ragland, mm-hmm. Adolphus Washington. <laughs> Sorry, I just keep laughing at that. But yeah, exactly as you said, you don't want to go close to it because then you approach 2017 and I brought it up to you earlier. It's like even a guy like Tanner Vallejo, Vallejo who wasn't even a isn't even a bill anymore, contributing as a cardinal at this point in time. You know, that was a foundation building draft and the 2016 draft that I just brought up that we drafted clearly for the previous regime it didn't work out and it brought us to where we were. So at the end of the day, I'm happy that we drafted Shaq Lawson, Reggie Ragland, Adolphus Washington, Cardell Jones, Jonathan Williams, Colby Listenby, you know, all those fantastic names that, you know, they're still having long careers here, right? (laughs) We got nothing from that draft. And that's another one is Cardell Jones. Um, Dak Prescott went like three picks before that. And then the rumor was that the bills were really hot after Dak Prescott. It's like, oh, really? Why didn't you trade up for him if you really liked him that much? It's great to say you liked him after the fact. What a terrible draft that was. And (laughs) Rex Ryan and Adolphus Washington at the time. I remember Rob Quinn, who used to do some work for Cover One, was just blasting the pick. It's like, this guy can't even play. What are you doing picking him in the third round? Rex Ryan just loved picking defensive players. But yeah, the other one I think we could probably mention is in 2014, trading two firsts to move up to get Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins was a, you know, a really good prospect. Unfortunately, injuries kind of derailed his career along with, you know, him kind of going sideways mentally a little bit. Um, but when you look at it, the bills could have stayed put and gotten an Odell Beckham or a Mike Evans. Although the story goes that if the bills had stayed put, they would have actually taken Eric Ebron, which would not have paid dividends. But looking back on it, you know, some of the receivers that went after Watkins got picked, um, you know, we, we mentioned a couple of them, Evans, Beckham, also Brandon Cooks was in that draft, even Jordan Matthews in the second round. I mean, not a great player there, but there was enough receivers there where you certainly didn't have to sell the farm to go up and get Sammy Watkins. But at that point, you were just looking for anything to believe in. And they were certainly trying to surround EJ Manuel with weapons, which is respectable because then you you find out what the quarterback is all about. And boy, did we find out what that quarterback was all about. But Man, Luca, for some reason, these uh, big three games usually make me feel better, but tonight I feel worse because we stuck in 2006 for way too long. <laughs> it's okay. We're we're back in 2022 right now. We're looking forward to the draft. We're going to keep talking about it next week and uh, positive vibes going forward. All right. Well, next week, it's going to be all about the defensive side of the ball. We're going to get into all of the Bills' positional needs. We're going to talk about prospects we like, and we will have another game of the big three. And obviously, if any more Bills news comes down the pike, we will get that covered as well as as well as all the other league news. But Luke, I kind of expect free agency to finally start slowing down, but I say that and the Bills will probably go out and sign a cornerback and a receiver, and we'll have a lot to talk about next week. But Either way, we will be here, and it's going to be all about the defensive side of the ball next week here on Bill's Chat. So we will see you next time on Bill's Chat, a pro football podcast.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Bills Chat, a pro football podcast. Be sure to also give us a follow on Twitter at Bills Chat Pod and spread the word. And appreciate you listening through Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you can find this podcast. Talk to you again next week.